Welcome to Don't Worry About It with Neeks. <clears throat> and on today's episode, we've got a good friend of mine, Alex Freed. Hey, Nico. Thank you for having me. Yeah, man. happy to have you on. So, to start, uh, your major in school. Let's, let's yeah, so uh, so I went to high school with Nico, uh, landed school, but I, I go to Penn now. Uh, and I'm a PPE major, which is politics, philosophy, and economics. Uh, and I also study real estate and urban development in, in Warden as a minor. Okay. Uh, but, you know, PPE is definitely the more interesting of the two. <laughs> So in, I remember you talking about this earlier um, with PPE. Is that something that is that a common kind of string of majors? Yeah, it's it's pretty common, and it's growing around the country where where more of more universities are are having some program that's at least similar. Um, mm-hmm. So I've heard different variants of it where like one of the PEs is switched for something else okay. or something else. Um, but you know. I, I think it is becoming increasingly common. I know like it's got big program at Michigan. Um, mm-hmm. It's definitely a very popular program at Penn as well. Um, so you know, actually, when I heard about it, uh, I was I was visiting Penn and someone recommended that I that I speak to this pre major advisor from PPE, um, and I was just like immediately in love with it mm-hmm. because it just is like I couldn't have hand handpicked like three better subjects yeah. for me. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, three years, three years later, uh, I'd say that I couldn't have handpicked two better subjects, yeah. <laughs> but, but I, but I still really, really enjoy it. Yeah. So it's, it's, it's been great. Okay. And, and the inner, like, what's the idea behind that? The, what's, the what's the, what's the rationale yeah. for the, for the yeah. three? I think, I think it's driven by creating the most kind of holistic educational experience. Mm. I think that the three of those really cover, I, I think they're extremely applicable to current events, mm-hmm. um, particularly the political science classes, which, which obviously use, draw real world examples. Um, but I've also taken, you know, kind of variants. What's really nice about the major is that once you get a little further along in it, you get to choose your kind of quote unquote concentration. Okay. Um, so what I did with mine was start studying globalization, um, mm. seeing how, how businesses kind of coalesce across, you know, international lines. Um, but it's but it's a lot more than that. And so, I, you know, for example, I took a class about emerging economies this year and stuff mm-hmm. about, you know, I've also taken classes that were, you know, much more abstract and theoretical in the philosophy realm, like, you know, the philosophy of space and time and all that stuff. Mm-hmm. And so PP is really nice because it lets you just kind of it lets me personally just fuel my passions. But okay. I think it allows people generally to kind of just really become, you know, I think I think it I think it allows people to become better citizens and better stewards of the world mm. um, because you get such an incredible, you know, drawing of different topics, um, mm. and, and I think that you cover it from a lot of different viewpoints. You get it. You get the quantitative aspect from you know the economics classes. You get the political science theory of it through political science, and then you get the philosophy, which brings it all together and says, yeah. "What do these really you know abstract smart thinkers think about all this?" So. Yeah. So it, it works. It works. But I definitely see the variance at other schools. And like I see like, oh, like if you replace political science with legal studies, like it still sounds really interesting. And so, mm-hmm. you know, there's a lot of different ways to do it. Yeah, it seems like the, the scope can vary. I guess if you if you have it with political science versus mm-hmm. legal studies, you could also have psychology. Oh, yeah. Option. So psychology is actually a big aspect. Okay. They actually yeah. they actually require you to take a couple psychology oh, okay. classes yeah, as well. Yeah. So you're exactly right. I don't know. Yeah. I don't know if I told you that before. No, I don't you think just so. Absolutely <laughs> nailed that. Well, but. I think I mean it makes sense because you look at. I I've come to like appreciate this through the podcast and conversations with people who are like political science majors, philosophy majors, economics majors. So psychology has a scope that is much narrower and mm-hmm. inter- interpersonal, while political science is looking at a systemic perspective, and then. Um, so that I mean, just like the variation right there mm-hmm. can like change the PPE scope. 
uh, in a way that it depends on the focus you have. So if you're looking right. at globalization, it makes sense that you're going to stick with political science and then right. um, on a on a broader scale. But yeah, that's um, do you do you find that you get a lot more room to kind of um, st- not study but but learn in that sense? There's a good amount of maneuverability with the major, mm-hmm. so it, it's structured in kind of basic groupings where there's mm-hmm. you know maybe five to ten recommended classes or, or sort of core classes which could fill the requirements okay. um, so you do get a bit of choice so for example you need to take a certain you need to take well like I said you need to take a psychology class yeah. so you you have to take a higher level psychology class in fact so you need to take psych 001 as a prerequisite to you know fulfill these um, higher level classes and so I chose to take like psych 170 which was judgment and or sorry social social psychology but I could have taken something about judgment and decisions Mm. and so there is a lot of maneuverability and at the same time there are a couple of you know staple classes which are absolutely required Um, and so I'm in one of those right now which is a philosophy class about the social contract we were actually discussing the other day Um, so so there there is there's kind of a balance between Mm -hmm. a lot of choice and a little bit of choice and a bit of it's dependent on because like I said you get to concentrate and then basically once you've concentrated on your on your globalization theme for example you basically just have to justify your classes to 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 a major advisor Um, and as long as they can sort of recognize it as being you know loosely or tenuously related to globalization then then it usually will fly um, mm. That was more the case in the past before I got to Penn and was, you know, one of the things that I was really excited about was that, you know, once I got to this point, I'd be able to take, you know, really, really just kind of my interest driven classes. Okay. Um, it's changed a little bit now where it has to be where, you know, I have to, f- you know, f- kind of fit into slightly stricter parameters. But mm. at the same time, you know, it's just like as far as majors go and, you know, I can only speak for Penn, but yeah. it's got a lot of choice. And that's that's one of the things that definitely drew me to it. Okay. And um, well, you, you talked about the philosophy of space and time. Oh, yeah. I, and that probably, I mean, there was probably little justification there with, with regard <laughs> to the major. Actually, believe it or not, so my, I took philosophy of space and time. Um, so I've taken a couple philosophy classes. That was the only one that actually was not related to my major at all. Okay. I actually took that for a college requirement. So, oh. so additionally, there are college requirements. Um, they're called sectors and foundations, and they're extremely broad. Um, mm. To the point where you know there can be, you know, fifty to hundred classes that would fulfill them. Okay. Um, so so that's sort of your your basic. Everyone in the college does these. Um, so I took philosophy of space and time. I think it fulfilled maybe like a quantitative data analysis class or something or sector or something like that. Mm. Um, but that class was just unreal. <laughs> yeah. Well, I remember we talked about it a little bit over the summer, uh-huh. and like we got a little bit into it. I remember you talking about how you had like fascinating conversations oh, yeah. with some of these people. And yeah. Just, they would just riff on their own. Oh, and just let goodness. them go. That's exactly right. The, the composition of the class was just so insane. Yeah. It was, it was, it was a professor and, and a lot of these philosophy and to some extent the political science classes too are really just driven by conversation. Mm-hmm. So the professor will kind of pose a topic, maybe even give a small lecture, perhaps have a PowerPoint, but the majority of the class will be kind of allocated to just, seeing what people think about these things Mm -hmm. um and what was so amazing about this class for me was because it was this philosophy of space and time class and because Mm -hmm. it fulfilled this quantitative data analysis requirement you had people from such different backgrounds you had like these huge philosophy buffs who were just generally just like tanks in philosophy and then you had engineering kids as well that were just really 
you know, interested in the mechanics of these kind of mm-hmm. things. And I think that they might have, you know, not fully understood what the course was actually going to be yeah. about because it was a bit more abstract than that and it wasn't quite as quantitative despite it being listed as a mm-hmm. quantitative data analysis. Um, but having those kids and then having just other kids who were just like generally just so interested in space and time mm-hmm. led to essentially three groups of kids that like all had different things to contribute just leading to the most like heavy hitting conversations yeah. ever. My professor would just kind of be standing there and I mean he was a very smart guy and he'd just be like, Wow, like that's <laughs> that's that's something I hadn't considered before. And so yeah. like it's particularly like the kids who could really view a, a similar question from a different perspective, like the engineering mm-hmm. kids could really offer a lot of insights that, you know, actually made, you know, the discussion much more philosophical. Mm-hmm. So it wasn't entirely yeah, because I mean it seems like it was like you said, a philosophical with engineering kids and then just a mixture of the two. Right. And so it's a good synthesis between like purely physical and the metaphysical. But mm-hmm. how much to the metaphysical did it fall towards? Well, we would study so so from so the class was not quantitative at all. Okay. Um, it was it was it was metaphysical in that it studied these like very very like high like like the top level of like the most abstract possible where mm-hmm. it's, it's talking about the fabric of the universe you're talking about mm-hmm. so what, like quantum what, theory what gen yeah so quantum string quantum theory. theory string theory sure um but then so that's that that kind of accounts for the things on the very smallest scale that we mm-hmm. have but then just looking at things on the large scale see what the fabric of the universe is made of oh wow. um and so one of the really interesting subjects about that class is because these sort of gigantic phenomena in mm-hmm. our universe are so difficult to reconcile with how things behave on the quantum level. Mm-hmm. It was a huge emphasis of the class was was like how how is this possible? How does this make any sense? Mm-hmm. You know what is this? You could even you could even like you would certainly not be not be you know you could definitely be forgiven for you know bringing a theological perspective to it mm-hmm. and saying like what does this say about theology that these two things are so different. You know, what does this say about the presence of God? You know, it was it was it was very much like that. And mm. so when you're answering questions about, you know, what came before the Big Bang, how does something come from nothing, you know, what exists before time is even created, yeah. there's really no way to answer those questions without getting pretty pretty met- metaphysical. Of course. It. Yeah. And so and so I really love those kind of questions. And, yeah. I, and I just think they're so cool. But combining that with, you know, established theory, like, mm-hmm. you know, learning about, you know, exactly what Einstein Einstein's, you know, special theory of relativity means and what its general theory of, theory of relativity means mm-hmm. and finding out that, you know, gravity actually isn't what we thought it was. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it's a little bit more like this than it was like that. So it's just like th- things like that, learning learning things that were actually really applicable while also thinking about things that were really kind of metaphysical yeah. was a really good combination. Yeah, that's interesting. I mean, because I've gotten into, I mean, obviously it's very interesting to talk about the metaphysical because it's, oh, yeah. it's like an unanswered question 100%. that you just keep going. Um but yeah, mixing the two, having like a, a base of knowledge and then starting from there. Right. It's gotten interesting because I, um, I told you I got into meditating and mm-hmm. using this app, Waking Up, there's a lot of lessons where they discuss the metaphysical in, but through consciousness. So at a much, like much lower level mm-hmm. on, on just consciousness, understanding where it comes from, where it goes, what happens in consciousness is it everything is it nothing do we right. understand and those questions that we i mean like for example the, the understanding of the brain we can't map consciousness but something that we have an understanding of like the fmris we have eegs we have we have little things that measure levels of the brain but then understanding where those 
like where did that come from how did that happen how did we establish that we are aware that we are aware right and it's the same i mean obviously this is it's much with the space and time it's a much broader understanding of it no but but i you know just generally speaking i find that intersection between science and philosophy so interesting mm-hmm. Absolutely. Um, and from that class i actually learned sort of an interesting definition of how we can sort of differentiate those two because well you know initially they sound like they're difficult to reconcile they're actually overlapping quite often mm. so I found that or the definition that of, of something that's a scientific you know discovery differs from a philosophical one in that scientific theories are are necessarily falsifiable mm. which means that if you there needs to be some way to prove that it's wrong exactly and if yeah. you can't if you can't devise yeah. of, a, of an experiment that can analyze that, then it's not really clear if you're talking about science anymore or if you're getting into philosophy. Exactly. So, for example, with quantum mechanics, because we can't actually observe things that you know we predict in string theory, it's it's sort of difficult, and a lot of people answer it very differently mm-hmm. about whether this is science or whether this is just theory. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and so, you know, with consciousness as well, which is another you know absolute interest of mine. Um, it's the same question of you know it's not it's not really possible to test right now we don't really have you know the equipment that can test something yeah. like what a what a conscious what consciousness exactly is mm-hmm. and so our theories about what it is um, while they're you know important and valuable they can't necessarily be scientifically proven or disproven and so it remains still a little bit of an abstract area where it's very philosophical still and there's you know a lot more gray area between mm-hmm. the two the two fields than you would think yeah no and understanding that it's it's a the subjective experience when we cross that line to the objective, which is becomes a, a falsifiable scientific mm-hmm. explainable experience, that would be that's gonna be huge. I mean, once we can understand the realm of consciousness on on a on a personal level and then on a on a you know a, a population scale, that's that must be massive steps forward and right in science. Absolutely. And, and and sort of touching on some some components of psychology, uh, one of the interesting things about consciousness and studying consciousness and why it's so difficult to devise a you know scientific experiment is essentially we inherently violate some of the principles of how we're supposed to conduct scientific experiments. Mm-hmm. Um, the scientific method is you know is dependent on you know impartiality and objectiveness, and it's not really possible to have that considering we all have conscious. Uh, or we all are yeah, conscious. We all, we all conscious. have consciousness. Exactly. We all are conscious. It's like that's that's inherently skewing in some sort of direction. Mm-hmm. It makes it very difficult to to study these things without you know imparting our own kind of biases and things mm-hmm. like that. So that's that's a huge emphasis of just how scientific you know experimentation is is devised and and also you know the limitations of it right now. Mm-hmm. Um, there's definitely you know a limitation in the you know the infrastructure and, and in the technology, but there's also limitations to you know, ourselves and, mm-hmm. and how we can, you know, really act as unbiased and, and completely impartial. There's also um, the element of the expression of the experience. I mean, consciousness is something that is so outside of our language mm-hmm. that when we were to try to explain it to someone, you would just say, well, I think, and then you would say along the lines of, I feel, and there is something about a greater ness that isn't, that isn't necessarily... Um, you know, physically there to, to express. Mm-hmm. And that's something that for me, as I've, I mean, I didn't understand it when I started a psychology major, but as I've, as I've dug into this more and more, it has seemed like the, the thing we've least understood 
and that we can, we, like you said, we, we're lacking the tools to understand the brain. And that is where this, a lot of our psychology comes from. And then also the expression of, of uh, our subjective experience is also limited in our language. We don't have, we don't have something that, as, as many people think aliens have, which is an expression that is beyond words. It's just mm-hmm. pure feeling. Right. And so that, that synthesis is something that if we can find, if we can find somehow to be able to, um, to express both sides in the physical and in the, in the subjective, it would be, I mean, it seems like that is where we are biggest, we're, we're most lacking. I mean, I think we can see with, um, with like other, other studies, there is, there are ways to, to, to falsify, to have like scientific expressions, but even then there are still obviously, like you said, biases and, Mm -hmm. and, um, the subjectivity, but something in, in psychology that's very interesting is that there is, there's an inconsistency of experience across um, across certain disorders, across um, other other aspects of of uh, of a person. That oh, yeah. I think once I think I think well one thing that's interesting actually is like this is we've talked about a little bit about this also is like psychedelics has been something that we can tap into a lot more and it's and something that with reading um, I've been reading a lot of more studies recently is that understanding. The effect of something that that we that isn't directed, um, the the kind of broadness. I mean, we look at we look at um, you know SSRIs, we look at an, other antidepressants, and we look at um, benzodiazepines, we look at um, anti-anxieties, we look at anti or ADHD medications. Those are very pointed. They're very directed at a neurotransmitters, at specific neurotransmitters that that can block or um, <clears throat> allow, I guess, I, I'm forgetting the word, but or like inhibit or the opposite of um, specific neurotransmitters, but with something as subjective, not in, in the literal sense, but subjective in the open-endedness and the, the broad uh, applicability of psychedelics, um, as in, I'm not speaking from experience here, but this is purely as, as a from reading and, and a book I highly recommend How to Change Your Mind I think I've told you about is mm-hmm. going back is that that is something there that seems to blur the line between the purely metaphysical the unfalsifiable and the falsifiable the the objective or at least as close as possible to the objective yeah I think you're bringing up a lot of really interesting things and uh, you know you touch on you know how you know, certain, certain medications like the SSRIs, for example, they affect, you know, neurotransmitters in a certain way. And they, and, you know, one could argue that, you know, an anti-anxiety medication or an, you know, an anti-ADHD medication or whatever it is, um, you could argue that those types of things alter your consciousness mm-hmm. in a way, um, which makes you question, you know, is your consciousness really just a, a composition of, you know, random neuron firing? Mm-hmm. And is it just, you know, what occurs in your brain on a very literal level? Or is it more than the sum of its parts? Mm-hmm. Um, and, and that's certainly a very interesting question. And I think a lot of people have sort of found a way to kind of circumvent the issues around, you know, the fact that bringing one's own consciousness into the equation is always inherently biasing because then you're now mm-hmm. inserting, you know, some part of yourself into what you're trying to understand. Um, and, you know, I'm, I'm wondering if, if, you know, like you said with meditation, a lot of, you know, kind of the higher levels of meditation is centered around, you know, almost ego dissociation and just mm-hmm. almost existing outside of yourself in a way that allows you to sort of view your thoughts in a, in a very kind of 
rational um, and objective yeah. light. It's um, the most objective light. Yeah. So yeah. so I think typically people are very much very much associate themselves with their thoughts and that makes a lot of sense because yeah. it's really what's occurring in their head. But there is a way, I think, and it can definitely be achieved through meditation, mm-hmm. where you're actually getting outside of that, and mm-hmm. you're sort of viewing your thoughts from from an outside perspective, and that allows you to achieve better control of them. Mm-hmm. Um, and 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 the act of that as well is kind of altering your consciousness. It's altering it's altering how you perceive the world, how you perceive everything. Mm-hmm. So, so clearly, you know, the consciousness is is, is malleable. It, it's it's it can be affected by the things that you do to it. And so it just makes the question of you know, what is this thing? Yeah. It's like so much more interesting. Exactly. It clearly, it clearly is not you know exactly. It's clearly not exactly just the the sum of the of the neuro of of neurological activity. Mm-hmm. It's it's got to be something more than that. And even though you know like we're talking about these medications and to some degree meditation and these things as well can actually change the. The, the, the firings in your brain. And if you were to look at an fMRI of two people at different times, you would see different activations. Mm-hmm. Um, it still seems like there's there's more to that. There's, mm-hmm. there's more than just what's what's physically occurring. Yeah. Well, and it's interesting that it it still could be, you know, the sum of a series of neurons of firing, but the the to the extent that that exists is so great that we can't we don't even know where they're firing, how they're firing, and well, we to some extent we know how they're firing, but there are so many different types of neurons or neurotransmitters, and there's so many areas of the brain that influence each other in so many different ways that if it were to be true, that there there is another that we would find more to that mm-hmm. once once it, we would understand how the brain is firing. Yeah, that's the other thing. It's just it's it's such a complicated mechanism. Mm-hmm. The brain. It's just to 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 to. I think that, you know, sort of generally speaking, to really assume anything with absolute certainty mm-hmm. is is a mistake. Mm-hmm. Um, I, you know, something that, you know, particularly these like philosophy classes, like the philosophy of space and time has shown is that, you know, so much of experience is subjective um, and so much of what we think is absolutely certain is disproven yeah. you know within half a century, within a century. And so you, you see that with people who, you know, are outstandingly you know respected for their contributions to this field you know isaac newton for example you know he was wrong about a lot of things Mm -hmm. even einstein missed a few things Mm -hmm. um so it's just it's just as technology improves as our methods of experimentation improve as our ability to conduct these experiments improves we're just going to keep finding more and more and and it's really exciting that we can sort of get closer and closer to what might potentially exist as an absolute truth and what mm. might, you know, just not exist. Maybe there is none. So, you know, just whatever, whatever we're getting closer to is, is really what's exciting about the, the journey. Mm-hmm. And I think something about that is, like you said, people were wrong. I mean, the, oh, yeah. some of the greatest minds that we've ever lived are, have been wrong before. And um, with that, I think the, like you're saying, we're, we're kind of approaching something close to an absolute truth. And I, I could never imagine that it was just singularly one person. I think it's going to be a synthesis of a of hundreds of years mm-hmm. of information and, and knowledge that kind of combines into what is the understanding of consciousness, understanding of space and time, and the understanding of, of, of the like the levels of each thing and, and the interaction between each all of those. Um, but also go, going back, I, you got me thinking about like the idea of people be, being able to be wrong mm-hmm. while still having a series of other uh, truths to them. Uh, it, with regards to philosophy, um, I remember we were talking with um, 
our friend Parker, we were talking about how he he was a, he's a big fan of Hobbes yeah. and and how he kind of sticks to him as being absolutely true. And it, I've I've kind of it's like it really stuck with me was how absolute it was for him that and this is not to this is just to people and this is not a criticism of him at all. Uh, this is more of a I see this with a lot of people. Um, and I and not I I think he might also I don't think he's just purely absolutist on this. I think it was just something that sprouted a series of thoughts for me. And it was the idea that the dogmatic view of, of certain people or certain ideas and how there's no, there's almost no room for, um, for synthesis or for additional thought. Um, I don't, I wonder what you think, what you think of that? Yeah. Well, on some level, I really kind of respect it and like it that, that Mm -hmm. someone can feel so certain in a certain belief. Um, and you know, Especially with something like Hobbes, which you know is discussing in a lot of ways social contract theory, uh, discussing what the kind of basic nature of man is, it's interesting because it sounds like you know when you're when you're deciding whether you know a certain philosopher resonates with you in that way, you're deriving that based on your experiences and what you imagine based mm-hmm. on your interactions with others, and so you definitely do have a degree of a high degree of experience with the subject that you're that yeah. you're that you're kind of deliberating on and so you know i think it's really cool that someone can feel like you know this this philosopher really resonates with me mm-hmm. what he's saying in this in this particular writing really res- resonates with me and so i've definitely found that with with certain philosophers as well um and i think that's something that's really gratifying when you can find someone that really sort of encapsulates the way you think mm-hmm. and then sort of expanding further into their writings and their works and learning more about them and mm-hmm. finding you know whether you know, they have more to say that you might agree with, uh, is, is a really interesting experience and it's a good endeavor. Um, and so I think that, you know, people can definitely believe things and feel very confident mm-hmm. in them. And there's 100% nothing wrong with that. But I, but I believe, and, and I, I, I use this quote a lot, but I, I keep forgetting to look for its source, but I believe it was Socrates that said, I believe I'm the smartest person here because I know that I know nothing. Yeah. And, and I, and I always enjoyed that quote because I thought that it had, an appreciation for the natural intelligence of man, the fact that we can really, you know, we can we can theorize and we can get close and we can think that things are absolutely true and we can derive these experiments which might or may not prove it. Mm-hmm. But to have that recognition that, you know, at the end of the day, there should be that small nagging part of you that says, can we do more? Can yeah, we, can we reevaluate? Can we reanalyze? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, is there more to this? Or mm-hmm. is this even, or are, are the assumptions that we're making and the in the the preconceptions that we're building these theories on are they 100 percent sound themselves and so i think it's a i think it's a psychological term called embedding when mm-hmm. you when you yeah. basically one of one of the things that you've taken as as law might not necessarily be that and so the things that you abstract from it are also in some sense flawed Mm-hmm. And so, and so, when you can't necessarily recognize that, you know, one of your original preconceptions might actually not be the entirety of of the mm-hmm. situation, uh, it changes it changes the outcomes radically. Mm-hmm. And so, it's so interesting. Yeah, no, it is interesting. I mean, it changes your. Dy- I think, well, yeah, it changes the dynamic of your relationships in a way that, if yeah, if you have a, a basis of of ideology that is grounded in something that it applies to almost all of your life and then you start you start reaching for other other uh relationships or or circumstances and and you'll you'll see that or i guess from an outside perspective we will see in those in those circumstances that 
the the outcomes will change a lot. Um, and it, it's I've seen for me my my um, issue with entirely uh, or the the embedding of, of of an ideology or someone in these ideologies is that um, there when there are similar circumstances where maybe they previously were not um, entirely driven by a singular ideology and then afterwards when they were um, I see that there's there's something that changed them that was not an, that was partially due to their their conscious experience but also due to this person this ideology and that's where I going back to like the the fear of the dogma of of ideology is that I it's there's almost a loss of individuality there that um and that's why I my my kind of view on it is more um find a, a good synthesis of of a series of ideologies that resonate with you mm-hmm. but don't stick with one or else they're going to you're just going to live the same life if purely through that Right, and we and we can see how powerful these these sort of ideologies are. Mm-hmm. Um, if we if we look at religion, for example, I mean, if you think about the the acts that have committed yeah. been committed over history, uh, in the name of religion, in the name of in the name of you know the Bible, the the Torah, the Quran, whatever it is, um, you know, it's it's extreme. There's there's a there's a real buying into these things, mm-hmm. and and one of the things that I've always found is tough. Is like you're saying is that is that it's it shouldn't be a zero sum game. It shouldn't be you either believe all of this or you believe none of this. Mm-hmm. Um, and so one of the things that I that I really respect about you know the way that you look at look at things is that like you said you're you're you know you come from a certain background. You you were raised with a certain religious belief, and yet your 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 you remain very. There's there's something called functional fixedness when you kind of like you can't really get out of using a certain thing in a certain way. Yeah. But if you can use your your ability to analyze and your ability to think and continue to reevaluate what you believe and continue to incorporate things from different from different places, then you're only contributing to a more well rounded self. Mm-hmm. And and so I always find that to be a really valuable thing is just you know, you don't. You definitely don't need to believe everything you're reading. Mm-hmm. You definitely don't. Not everything needs to resonate with you. But if you just do the reading and you yeah. just learn about different viewpoints, Absolutely. I think people are always better off for that. And I think that it just allows. It's. I think it was Mill who said the free market of ideas. Mm-hmm. It doesn't matter if there's a lot of wrong ideas coming in. It's just that the conversation, the dialogue that ensues is going to lead to you know the best solutions, the most most overall positive mm-hmm. outcomes mm-hmm. So, the most synthesized yeah no yeah. it's it's always good to have these discussions and it's mm-hmm. always good to have discussions with people that you know disagree with you on some mm-hmm. of these things and can bring you know unique perspectives to it because mm-hmm. we all have you know extremely unique perspectives on things and mm-hmm. they're they're shaped in part by you know you know the 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 nature of things which is you know what's around you the environment the way you grew up the type of the type of parenting you had you know everything mm-hmm. but it's also some part of some part of it's inherent it's it's you know it's deeply ingrained in you that people have certain propensities to certain beliefs and certain you know kind of personality traits mm-hmm. and so there's a, there's a real there's a real duality to that that, mm-hmm. that 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 creates how people believe things yeah no it's it i just it got me thinking about the functional fixedness and that mm-hmm. like with, I mean, we see it the most in like our society with with um, 
politics. That not that I'm I don't like talking about much about politics, but more about the nature of it mm-hmm. and the nature of uh, how people are so driven um, by one certain ideology and even if they may not have read so much into it they might have just heard something from someone or heard someone something from someone that they agree with or um read something somewhere a tweet or something there's just there's like you said i think being able to read do the reading you know you know indulge in as much of uh information building as you can and i think that that allows you to have the most well-rounded um kind of experience you can have uh so it it bothers me when um when someone like for me i mean for example i i haven't read all of the ideologies i haven't read all of the the political theories and so i know what i don't know and not in that i just know i don't know things you know that you don't know exactly so you're you're always open to learning more exactly and i think giving giving uh people the benefit of the doubt there and saying well, they just they just haven't understood this aspect this aspect of that perspective yet, and I think once they they were, they would actually have a, a, a different perspective on it. Is um, I think is necessary to some people. I think there's there's people that, like you said, there's an ingrained um, trait that that a lot of people have that is just this this fixed pers- uh, viewpoint on something, and then there's there's you can't change my mind on that. Mm-hmm. And I think being able to change your mind when given enough of a good reason or enough of statistics or enough of, enough of a, a valuable viewpoint um, allows for, for an opportunity of change. And, of, and, and maybe you don't change. Maybe you, you actually stick with the same ideology you had before, but now you have a little more ammunition in your gun because you know that a, another side of it. You understand mm. a little more. And that gives you a little more push there. Absolutely. I, I, I want to return to that politics thing because, number one, that's a terrific example. And I wish I had used it almost instead of religion um, because politics is such a perfect example of it, especially modern politics mm-hmm. um, where, you know, you, you hear all the time, that, you know, whereas we're as polarized as we've ever been, um, where, where, you know, Democrats are moving further left and Republicans are moving further right. And basically, you know, it's another situation where it's it's kind of like it's a zero sum game. It's mm-hmm. it's like you're either fully you know you're you're either you're either fully conservative and you believe in you know gun control and you believe in you know these certain rights and that are inalienable, or you're completely in the other direction and there's no room for compromise. There's no room for a middle mm-hmm. ground. And and I think that's something that's that's been you know driven further, m- mostly through the availability of news networks, but mm-hmm. also the unreliability of news networks mm-hmm. um one of the things you know you got me thinking about i don't know if you've watched the social network yet. i have um it's a really terrific or a social dilemma social dilemma yeah, thank yeah, you yeah. i'm right i'm not thinking of yeah. good <laughs> the, movie though the social network. yeah um yeah so the social dilemma thank yeah. you on netflix um is a terrific example about how the information that you receive is essentially filtered through your own preconceptions already you mm-hmm. essentially are just tailored information that's going to reinforce your mm-hmm. beliefs and that can be a dangerous thing because that's part of why these ideologies are becoming more and more delineated is because you know people are receiving one set of information and other people are receiving another so mm-hmm. what i search into you know my google search bar is going to be in the results that it yields are going to be entirely different from what you re- receive mm-hmm. and unfortunately you know as the social dilemma 
you know mentions a lot of this is driven by you know profit mm -hmm. <laughs> it's it's marketing it's basically yeah. you know a lot of you know instagram you know facebook all of these things are are, are driven to try to keep you on there for longer mm -hmm. um and you know i don't mean to sound like a theory conspiracy theorist because a lot of this you know you can just kind of look up and you'll see um that you know it's unfortunate that a lot of the information that you put into these you know social networking sites for example then gets returned to you kind of in a different format that's that's catered to keeping you on there that's catered to things that you might like um you you, you gotta have to ask yourself if you don't really believe this you know mm -hmm. how does instagram pick money how does, how yeah. does obviously there's advertisements but there's more to it there's mm -hmm. there's there's the selling of of these of these profiles and these yeah. and, and that that allow you know different companies to cater and target advertisement and, and keep you on for longer and mm -hmm. so it's it's a really we live in a tough time because it's it's tough to know where you can get information from reliably reliably and you know it's getting tougher and tougher mm -hmm. um so you know even you know i definitely struggle with where do i look for information yeah. as 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 more and more you know different you know, publications and, and media outlets become kind of skewed in one sort of agenda, yeah. it's hard to know where to look. And, mm -hmm. and that's tough because, you know, I'm of the belief that, you know, we're only, we're going to be better off if we can find middle grounds, if we mm -hmm. can find places where we agree rather than we, where we disagree. Yeah. I just think that's, that's going to be more productive. And understanding where the other side comes from is vital to that. Exactly. And you just don't get that when you're only getting the media that supports your beliefs. Mm -hmm. And, and someone, um, you remind me of someone that made a good point that called this era the, the post-information era. Because, I mean, for the longest time, news was the most reliable source of information. Newspapers, um, you know, the radio and, and television and everything. Right. And so now, a real commitment to the truth. Back the yeah, news. there really was. Because there was a, li a lot of limited information. But with the invention of phones and computers, we've had a lot more. And the internet, there's a lot more access to information. And so now there's a lot of skewing to a side or to another side of information and it makes me think of the idea of a because like you said that it's all kind of based around profits making making money for the the social network the social um social media companies and also the um the news outlets um like where is it possible to have a like a profitless perspective of um of news in that it just it goes back to this like the first principles of finding the truth in something because I mean whenever I read I don't read the news a lot I kind of stick to like one guy now his name's Tim Poole he's, he's kind of a he's a um, he used to work for Vice and then he, he realized like he was not it was not in his uh, it was not his the way he thought news was meant to be push uh, you know put out which was which was very driven towards towards their uh, I think it was, for them is more to the left and I obviously he's also on the left and I'm not I'm not even someone who would consider on one side or the other. I think he just I don't even watch the news that much, but whenever I do, I'll just watch his little twenty minute segments. He kind of pulls together a bunch of, of different um newspapers and, and little uh, segments and then we'll we'll kind of give you the information as it is, give his take on take on the information and then let you kind of live with it. And that's something that we see 
um, is missing in when you see, for example, CNN and Fox. Right. They kind of drive to one side or the other. Right. It's almost not even enough to search for like nonpartisan media outlets now mm-hmm. because you know they they still are skewed by you know this that and the other thing, mm-hmm. um, and you know this isn't a criticism criticism of every media outlet, but it's just saying that it's, it's just getting harder and harder to find those reliable ones. You almost yeah. need to search for for outlets that almost intentionally try to bring to bring the two sides together um a friend of mine had sent me a newsletter that's i think published every wednesday i'll have to look for the name of it um but it was essentially the the premise of it was that we're so divided right now and we can't see the other side of Mm. of of what we're talking about we can't see other people's perspectives um, how do we how do we get over that? How do we how do we find some common ground? Mm-hmm. And so a lot of these newsletters every Wednesday would come out and they would be talking about an issue and they'd be saying, all right, well the right's saying this and the left is saying this, and you know you might be surprised that there's a little bit more overlap than you thought there yeah. was. And yeah. so it just feels like it, it's unfortunate that ex- the times that call for extreme nationalism seem to be the times where we can always agree the best, you mm-hmm. know, and that usually seems to happen in the form of wars and terror yeah. attacks on our country and and winning you know you know the olympics and different things yeah. and it and it shouldn't be that way i think there need, there needs to be a recognition that the person to my left and the person to my right is an american it's a mm-hmm. it's a good it's a it's someone who has you know who's making a good faith effort to improve this country and mm. you know there's unfortunately a lot of biases and ignorance that exists in the world and you know it exists in certain locations geographically and it exists you know right here as well mm-hmm. and so it's just about you know are we really going to drive ourselves further apart or are we going to mm. try to find some some sort of balance where mm. are we going to try to recognize it's about humanizing the other person yeah. and recognizing that they're they're a person with you know the same thought processes and and, and belief systems as you they just might interpret them a different way. Mm-hmm. And so it's very complicated. And it's unfortunate that, you know, so much of our belief is is driven by, you know, things that, you know, might not necessarily be the most reliable anymore. Mm-hmm. And I, you remind me of also like individuality, the idea of that um, kind of how, how news outlets aren't, um, you know, it's it's very hard to find a reliable news, any reliable news outlets, even, even like I was saying about Tim Pooley's, even though he is a, kind of a freelance news guy, I think there has to be almost like going back to how we said, do the reading, you know, read different perspectives and then you can make your own opinions. And I think that's a problem is that there is, there is such a drive towards just listen to us. We're going to give you the right thing. And this is all we got. And then they're only giving you one side of the, of the story and they're only giving you their, their, and it's also entirely opinionated, which is very frustrating on, on, trying to create it's almost like we're babies and we can't make our own opinions and so let them let them do it for us but i mean the way you just posed it it seems like it also grants us the opportunity to do that which sounds a lot more humanistic and a lot better than than the way i've been seeing it a lot recently Mm -hmm. which is hopeful um but um with that i think the that sense of individuality has really been lost i think because of the mass amounts of information that's being um put out and i think and um and also the possibility i use this analogy a lot and i've used it on the podcast many times before is the that you it's if you are um you, there's two plots of land and there's a fence about four feet tall in front of you you have a shovel and a ladder 
And the more that you start, let's say it's just, we'll do politics wise, left, right. The more that you start, let's say if you're on the left, the more you start watching CNN and, um, and reading on uncertain news outlets and start insulting the right more and more, you start digging your hole. Mm -hmm. And there's a point where you get so deep, you don't even know what you're yelling at anymore. You don't even know what you're arguing with. Because the whole point is, I guess you're just, you're having a discussion at this point. And the more that you insult, the more that you um, limit yourself on, uh, on your readership, the, the deeper that hole is. And then there's a point where you don't even know what you're discussing with. And the point is, is grab the ladder. Climb to the other side, understand where it's coming from and have a basis. It's not easy. That's mm -hmm. the big thing. I think the, the, the hardest part about, about trying to convince people, because I've had like arguments with people about this. It's like, why would I even listen to them? Because they're all racist. It's like, you don't even know that. You don't know that they're all racists. Right. The assumption itself is easy to make. Assumptions are the easiest thing to do. Generalizations are always very easy mm -hmm. to do. But when you jump over to the other side and you stand there and you say, okay, I get it now. That's hard because you have to collect more information. You have to read more. You have to understand more. And you have to bring together a full synthesis of experience to create a reality that actually makes sense and isn't driven by uh, an embedding of ideology. And that is something that individuality grants us. It gives us the opportunity to do that because it says, I don't need to be on the left or the right. I can be left and right. I can believe on some, like you're saying, there's, there, there's a lot of overlap on these things. I mean, there's a basis of, of human or humanistic um, values that, that want a, a pursuit of happiness to be achieved that um, is kind of forgotten. Mm -hmm. And in, um, I hear this a lot. It's like going back to first principles because first principles are like, all men are created equal, which now you could change the wording and it's like all people are created equal. That's fine. Um, okay, I'm blanking on the other ones, but it's a start with that. You treat people as, as equals and then from there it sprouts a lot of opportunity and a lot of variability in ideologies that isn't um, afforded when you're, when you're kind of in that hole. You're just mm -hmm. stuck on that side. Yeah, absolutely. There's a huge danger of just overgeneralizing the other side mm -hmm. and just and essentially dehumanizing them. Mm -hmm. uh, and like you said, it's just, I mean, it's, it's, it's hard for me to believe that people can really just sit so far on one side um, without really fully considering all of the qualities that that represents. Mm -hmm. um, because, you know, I always laugh to myself, you know, what is, your your stance on gun control have to do with your belief in how much the federal government should be taxing. Yeah, you know what what do those two things really have to do with one another? And yet they seem so intertwined. Mm. Um, you know, you know where where the right side is believing in small government and these certain belief systems, and the left side is believing in larger government and these certain belief systems that don't necessarily seem to to to, to, to have side. much sort of. Oh, you know, they're not really related mm -hmm. and so i so i always find it surprising that you don't find more people that you know can can sit in one one direction for for one issue and sit in another for a, for a different one mm -hmm. and so i you know i would just love to see more of that and i think that Absolutely. you know it has to start at the top and so i think yeah. that the the more that we see you know politicians taking stands for what they believe you know ethically and morally as opposed to you know what's gonna get them reelected. yeah um I think I just I just I just see the country being in such a better place as mm -hmm. a result as a result of, mm -hmm. of people, you know, abiding by their their ethical values as opposed to their you know essentially what's to their to their benefit mm -hmm. to their gain, mm -hmm. and so 
you know, one can only hope, right? Yeah, no, you can only hope. But I mean, this is something that with like these conversations that we have, I mean, obviously we're, we're in agreement in, in that we want the kind of the same thing that is uh, a more humanized view of each other. Mm -hmm. um, but I think that is just the basis. Then from there, we're allowed to agree with each other. I mean, you, you're Jewish. I, I would say I'm more atheist at this point. I grew up, I went to a Catholic school, but... In my, I, didn't, I was not raised Catholic at all. And so there's right there, theologically, two different belief systems. Um, we go to different schools. We, we live in different areas. So we have, there's, there's similarities, but there's also a lot of differences that we have that um, we can reconcile when we, um, when we establish that we're both people. Mm -hmm. That we're both just pe guys who are trying to talk and figure out what are you trying to say and what am I trying to say. Right. Um, and if you're, if you're truly of the belief, and, and this is the way that I feel about it, that um, Tabula Rasa, John Locke, mm -hmm. basically saying every single person starts at the same place when they're yeah. born. Um, and, you know, that was a really big thing at the time because, you know, it sort of, it sort of discredited the concept of the original sin mm -hmm. um, in a way because it sort of, it, it didn't imply that like human beings are naturally evil or, yeah, or anything yeah. like that. Um, but it was it was it's such an important thing to remember that we all start from the same place, and for the most part, I, you know, I talked about nature and nurture before, and you know, to some degree, you know, your personality traits and the components of your of of who you are are derived from your genetic material mm -hmm. and from you know certain propensities that you have physically, but so much of this is about nurture. It's so much about your environment mm -hmm. that if you can just recognize that you know at at its most fundamental value at, at its core each person is an inherently good person that started from the same place that you did and may have you know developed certain belief system based on their experiences then it becomes much easier for you to sort of resonate with them mm -hmm. and it makes it easier for you to find common ground mm -hmm. and so there just needs to be more of that recognition in mm -hmm. my view and allows you to mold um you know your your perspective you know you can as you, you know, someone were to present their perspective more and more, you start, you actually allow, you kind of open yourself up to their experience a little more and you can open up yourself to what they're talking about rather than sitting on your side and grounding yourself on there. You kind of get up off the ground and you walk on the other side and then there's, you, the world is a lot different place when you see it from a different person's perspective. And that's a lot, that's something that I found very interesting with, um, you know, news, but also talking to people, um, talking with friends, talking with people I'm not necessarily friends with and just people who, and hearing different conversations. Um, and that's something about podcasts that's awesome is like you can, it brings together people that if you can establish, like we said, a base ground, that is, let's just do a podcast and let's see what happens. From there, the conversation opens up and there's an opportunity that isn't afforded when people are just yelling at each other in the right. middle of a street. Right. And, and, and people have... Of far greater differences have done this before. Mm -hmm. I, think of, I think of like James Baldwin, and I don't remember who he debated, but James Baldwin was an African American um, during a time of you know deep segregation and, mm -hmm. and discrimination in America, who I think traveled overseas and debated with a you know prominent kind of just a man of a very different viewpoint um, mm -hmm. abroad and. And the discussion, I mean, if you watch it, it's just, yeah. it's so intellectual. It's just, 
there's 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 a deep respect for the intellectual yeah. merit of the other side. And, yeah. and and one of the things that's tough there is obviously uh, if this other person is advocating you know discrimination, then I don't really respect their intellectual yeah, yeah. merit. But um, I, I don't believe that was the case. I think it was a bit more nuanced than that, and mm-hmm. I think it was a bit more just about general general you know trends in in society Mm -hmm. um and so you know people can really reconcile their differences more than they think they can Mm -hmm. um and it's and it's been done before it's been done many times and 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 much more difficult scenarios i mean we we view this as a difficult time to come together but you know i can think of a lot of times in history where it It could be be worse way more difficult Mm -hmm. way Mm -hmm. more difficult yeah and so you kind of touched on the the idea of religion Mm -hmm. and um i've as, like I said, I'm not, I'd say I'm more of an atheist. I'm not exactly, I don't fall into a category yet. I think I'm open to the possibilities of, of um, metaphysical answers to questions that I haven't found answers to yet. That yeah. I'm not, you know, driven by one book or the other. Mm-hmm. But do you see <clears throat> that um, the reconciliation of religions across the, I mean, you look at right now that the state of Christianity, Judaism, and Islam I, the the kind of the big three religions in the world the most dom the most dominant um or not even the most dominant but the most recognized in the yeah. world, I see more of a, of a reconciliation with Christianity and Judaism as they both have the Old Testament as kind of the start of their books but then less so kind of do you see that happening? I mean I see it happening but how I guess if if you do do you, how do you see that happening? Well I think it's I think it's complicated because. A lot of the doctrine of, of all three religions is, is very similar in a lot of ways. Mm-hmm. Um, the interpretations obviously differ. Um, I think it's easier for for Judaism and Christianity to reconcile um, because it's a tough one, honestly. Mm-hmm. It's it, you know there really really fundamentally shouldn't be a reason why why all three can't be easily uh, equally reconciled with one another. Um, some of it might be related to kind of this interpretation of these holy books. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that in America, there's been a, a, a long history of anti or Islamophobia based on, you know, just, you know, the, the actions of, of a really unfortunate minority um, that, that's led to a lot of really anti-Islamic hatred in the country. Mm-hmm. And I think that, you know, that's probably a lot of the reason why Judaism and Christianity seem so much more similar to, to each other. It's just because, you know, that's how we kind of perceive it. It's not really the reality. Mm-hmm. I, I think that all are equally, all, all promote good tenets of, of being a good person mm-hmm. and doing these things. And, and by the way, all, all doctrines have, you know, components Thoughts. of them that, you know, we definitely can agree with now. Yeah. You know, some advocate slavery, some say it's appropriate. Do. All advocate <laughs> slavery. Um, and so, you know, you need to, and that's why I think it's important to recognize the value and recognize the limitation of these books because if you take everything at the exact face value and, and assume it so literally then you're essentially operating on a doctrine that's at least 2,000 years old mm-hmm. significantly older in, in, in all likelihood mm-hmm. so that seems like a dangerous thing to do yeah. um, because conditions change and we we've, we see that now in in the American Constitution as well um, the things that were written at, at its inception differ significantly from how we view now. Mm-hmm. Um, and so there's this argument between viewing the Constitution as a living Constitution, which is continuously being amended and updated and is 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 essentially just a, a product of current belief yeah. and, and a concept of the Constitution needing to be needing to be interpreted as it was written. Um, yeah, and, the and, fundamentalism. Yeah, and, and that's, that's obviously very dangerous because there were a lot of things that, you know, 
that you know were permissible that you know are no Aren't. longer mor- morally per- permissible. So just mm. just figuring out you know how do we how do we what do we take from these texts? Are yeah. are we supposed to take them literally? Are we supposed to just let them inform how we live our lives? Are we supposed to take the good from it based on based on what we view as good now? And so it's it's really a question, um, and I think that it's it's one that most people you know i think take really really good things from religion i think religion's Mm -hmm. a really really good thing for people because i think it helps a lot of people feel really comfortable Mm -hmm. um i know for like for example i don't like flying i just like can't stand it so Mm -hmm. when i get on a flight i just like say a little prayer like think of god like you know it just helps me you know am i am i really thinking that god cares if my plane crashes like no not really but at the same time, you know, it's just something that assuages my fear just a little bit. Yeah. And, you know, it's just nice. Um, it's nice. It's good to have faith. And so mm-hmm. I think it's important and I think it's helped people a lot over time. But um, but recognizing recognizing when things might go too far, um, particularly when you're, you know, inciting violence against someone yeah. else based on their religion, is, is, is really important to recognize too. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, I I just I bring this up because well, a lot of things I've gotten into recently with the guy who uh, Sam Harris, who he did the, has the Waking Up app. He's he's kind of an outspoken atheist. He um he's actually known for debating a lot of um of um what's, I guess the is more religious uh, figures, not mm-hmm. necessarily religious, but people who theologians. apply re- yeah theologians, but more also just that apply religious um uh, principles into their into their ideology mm-hmm. and so for example I, i've been listening to um a debate that uh he has with jordan peterson if you know who that is he's he's a he's a he's kind of a controversial figure he um he's a psychologist a professor of psychology at the university of toronto and he he actually just was very ill and stuff but um in 2018 he has these debates about because he uses um he applies uh christian principles and and kind of from the bible into his his um kind of he has like these maps of meaning which is kind of finding your meaning as a person and in in life and he has these books and they're very well known and very well regarded and then with with sam harris who's outspoken atheist and kind of argues these these points and and the the groundings of of experience and knowledge as um and kind of how they they and then it's moderated by um a uh evolutionary biologist but his name is brett weinstein he's um also controversial for another thing with his his college evergreen state college um with the whole protest stuff it kind of sparked with him which is interesting but he's jewish so it's an interesting discussion that they because he can play to both sides and mm-hmm. and then also he also has a book written uh sam harris with majid nawaz who is a a uh he well, he's a practicing muslim but he used to be in his in the leader of an islamist group and i can't remember the name because i don't want to mis mispronunciate it but they, they, they made a documentary together and it's called Islam. And in the book, it's actually also called Islam and the Future of Tolerance. And so it's that, it's exactly finding that reconciliation between the, the literal um, interpretation, the radical interpretation, the conservative interpretation, and then the reformist interpretation, which is the more modern 21st perspective. Mm-hmm. Um, and he uses like the analogy of like con- concentric circles. So it's like with, with Islam, there's radical Islamist, which is radical is, you know, as we know, terrorism and and um, the more fear mongering. Then you have Islamism, which is applying the Quran and the two other um, like Muhammad's biography and there's another scripture and applying that to the law of of uh, these countries Sharia law or Sharia law. Uh-huh. And then there's conservative Islam, which is more 
applying the just to the lifestyle, not necessarily believing or not being part of any sort of group or anything, but still believing to a very um, strong extent. And a lot of the um, a lot of the uh, beliefs that the um, the scriptures have. And then there's the reformists, which is, is kind of what most people are in all religions is the, the 21st century modern perspective, which is a synthesis of and kind of how you're saying about the constitution, how it's 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 a living constitution. It's it's constantly amended, it's constantly reformed, and it's constantly being changed and, and re-established in a way that fits the today's perspective that wasn't um apli- I mean that wasn't applicable then and is now applicable now. I mean, mm-hmm. like we said with slavery. Slavery was a thing you could just do. You could own slaves then. Now that's totally immorally wrong and right. we don't agree with that. Right. There's a code of conduct and you know, mm-hmm. all of these that, that define, you know, the punishments that can be levied for killing your slave. And you know, exactly. if the slave doesn't die in two days then then you don't need to be punished. Like it's you know, obviously we can't take everything exactly. as being literal because then we would be justifying, you know, ex- extremely immoral beliefs. Mm-hmm. Um and, and I think one of the things that's really helped me to sort of recognize the common ground between, you know, the, the major face of the world is just traveling, just seeing these places. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, obviously I have, you know, Muslim American friends now, but a, a Muslim American is going to have different perspectives on things than someone who literally, you know, lives in a country that, that operates on Sharia law. And mm-hmm. so, you know, to, to, to travel to places like Jordan and, you know, to some degree, the United Arab Emirates and, you know, um, Egypt, Morocco, just to go there and, and to see that things are not very different mm-hmm. um, is, was really important to just like actually assigning, assigning like direct experience to something that, you know, I already believed, you know, I, I, I like to think I'm someone who never really had any sort of, you know, anti-religious, any, anti-anything really beliefs. Mm-hmm. Um, but just to actually get exposed to that really, really was a nice, was a nice thing that helped, yeah. that helped along the way to really recognize and assign faces and say, you're, you know, you're someone who, you're a great person, I really like you. Yeah. Right? And, and, you know, we come from half, halfway across the world from each other, but, you know, there's, there's a lot of common values that we share. Yeah. So it's, I've, I've just been really fortunate for being able to have that experience mm-hmm. and see that firsthand. Yeah, no, that's definitely... I remember when we talked about it one time, like, yeah, the same, the idea of traveling and, and seeing these things firsthand rather than just talking about them from your home and, and not actually having any sort of firsthand experience. Um, that's, it's definitely interesting because that is exactly speaks to the analogy of, you know, digging your hole or like the, the fence and just digging a hole versus climbing the ladder. Right. I think go, traveling go over there, yeah, go over yourself. there and see for yourself, Absolutely. see see what it's really like. And the thing that I hear a lot is, well, if I went, I would get killed or I would get in prison because of my religion or my, the way I look and stuff. And it's like there, that, that makes sense. I mean, that's a fear that is, that is understood because that is a scary thing. I mean, if, if you were to go somewhere and immediately be put in prison because of, of an identity you you have or the skin color or anything, that is a scary thought to have. And that's a, and that's a fear worth having. And I say, and I wonder, I mean, what is the, how, like, what's the compromise you can make with someone who says, you, I'm, go, I'm willing to bet that you're not going to, almost. And that's not how I'd put it, but, you know, right? how would you... You know, well, I that? think there are places in the world that I just simply don't feel comfortable traveling to. Mm-hmm. Um, and there are different reasons for it. Not all of them are based in, you know, the religious doctrine of that place. Um, you know, I wouldn't, I wouldn't really be that eager to travel to a place like Afghanistan or Syria because it just feels like, you know, right now it's just... 
it doesn't seem like the right time given mm-hmm. you, know, you know and there's a lot of reasons for that it's it's given you know united states involvement and in their histories united states has obviously been very involved in a lot yeah. of you know emerging polities through you know the 19th 20th century particularly the 20th so you know it's complicated because there's a lot of anti-americanism in a lot of these places um where it's not necessarily i hate you because you're white i hate you because you're jewish or christian i hate you because you're american and and sometimes you know it's hard it's hard to say that you don't necessarily entirely see where they're coming from in certain situations because you know the, the unfortunate consequence of fighting you know the spread of communism for example let's say in south america is that it led to power vacuums that you know essentially installed you know dictatorship yeah authoritarian dictators and so you know you can see where you know some of these places are coming from but at the same time you know someone who says that you know i won't travel to morocco because it's uh it's an islamic country islamic country and because i don't feel safe there Mm -hmm. that's you know that's misguided and i think Mm -hmm. that's again born out of probably the news that you're receiving and the information that you're getting Mm -hmm. um because i was i was in morocco quite recently and you know it was just wonderful i mean Mm -hmm. it was just a terrific experience and and so yeah i think there are places that you should absolutely you know maintain a very healthy you know healthy distance from Mm -hmm. um but you know north korea fits in there too and Mm -hmm. it's not because of a religious belief it's because we're american um so so i so i have found you know in different places around the world there has been different degrees of anti-americanism i remember remember traveling to vietnam and feeling you know very uh very disliked Really? Um, yeah, even by the tour guide who we had, just like would make would make a lot of comments about the Vietnam War, and like basically just blame the Americans and yeah. like what do you say to somebody like that? Like yeah, you kind of you kind of just have to say I'm sorry. But, yeah, and it's but, not like but you it's, but it's a tough it. but it's a tough position to put somebody in. Exactly. I don't I don't travel to Germany and start criticizing people for the Holocaust. Exactly. You know, it's it, like you said, it's a it's a different generation. You can't blame individuals for the decisions of the past and mm-hmm. decisions that essentially the government of a country makes. Um, so it's, it's a fine line, but at the same time, you know, it, it, there, there's a lot of, there's a lot of different difference of belief, um, in the world about, you know, what America's role is in mm-hmm. it. And so you, I've definitely seen a pretty, pretty wide variety. And yeah. unfortunately I've seen too much, probably too much negativity. Yeah. No, it's, it's a shame because <clears throat> I think as like the idea of globalization, I mean, mm-hmm. the, that being able to spread a, uh, a perspective or an ideology or even even a wealth um, around the world seems like a good idea but when it but when there's different manifestations of that it kind of it becomes flawed and then <clears throat> and also the way it interacts with that society it can it can flaw your perspective of that original ideology or whatever it may be um, mm-hmm. which is too bad because I mean it's it's fine because it happens I don't think there is there we have not found a universal truth of life yet and i and that's fine i mean i think i think um like i said i think it's going to be a synthesis of a bunch of different perspectives coming into what become a more true reality um Mm -hmm. and the more we can do that the better but i still think that an acceptance of for example you you have nothing to do with the government the u.s government's imposition on Afghanistan, Pakistan, all these these Middle Eastern. That's countries. what you think. <laughs> I'm just kidding. I have nothing to do with it. No, he, is. <laughs> he um no he's he's not no I'm not even gonna keep going. <laughs> not <old> enough. <laughs> not worth. <laughs> but um yeah I mean something like that I think the or when you're in Vietnam and you're getting these comments I there's 
there is no reason for you to be getting those comments. I think if they were to go, and obviously it's also a tour guide. I don't think they fought in the war either. And mm-hmm. and maybe if they did, who are like what are they doing at that point? What are you accomplishing? And I think that's kind of going back to that that they have been in the same loop of thought and and belief that hasn't really allowed much change or fluidity that isn't affor- is afforded to us. I right. Think. And the tough thing about that, to draw on a couple things from psychology, is one that, you know, we most commonly remember, like, the first thing and the last thing that we saw. Mm -hmm. The last one's called the recency effect. I don't remember what the first one is, but those are the two things that we remember. So if your decisions and your judgments are informed by basically just two data points, like, that's kind of unhealthy. And and the other issue there is that when they are informed by two data points and and they could be negative, what you find is that, you know, the, the fallibility of human memory and, and of the way that, like, things seem to kind of coalesce in our brain is that, you know, feelings become stronger every time you, every time you remember something. So, so when, you, when you learn something for the first time and you're remembering it, it gets consolidated in your brain and then gets stored. Mm-hmm. Every time you think of it, it essentially does that process again where mm-hmm. you're essentially bringing it to the forefront, thinking of it, and then it gets reconsolidated and restored. Mm-hmm. And what happens when it gets reconsolidated is that there are so many different things that will actually change the memory. Mm-hmm. Um, and so you get these huge differences. And that's why people seem to have such different memories of, of such you know, similar things. Think about the yeah. Mandela effect, about how people literally will like maintain that Nelson Mandela died in prison in the 90s or, or whatever. Yeah. Like it's, it's, it's crazy to see just how flimsy the how, the how flimsy memory. the human memory actually is mm-hmm. and and the more that you think about something the more that more time that occurs and the more that you're affected by the dispositions that you had when you were thinking of them and mm-hmm. the ways that you thought about them like you could almost tell yourself when you're thinking of something that something happened that didn't happen mm-hmm. and five years down the line when you're thinking about it again you, you, still you might genuinely believe that the thing that you genuinely made up five years ago <laughs> happened, yeah. And, yeah, and it will it will happen easily. Mm-hmm. It's just it's just unfortunate, and and it's another thing to recognize about people is that, you know, our memories are flawed, and you know sometimes you got to be a little bit tolerant with people about mm-hmm. that, and it's it can be tough. I think um, you make a good point about yeah the the flaws of memory, and I think. For me, as I've noticed more in, in studying the psychology and understanding, like you were po- making the point of the two, the two uh, data points of, a, of an experience is that a big part of it and this, the dispositions, as you mentioned, I think the biggest one, and obviously it, it encapsulates a lot, but it's emotion. And, and it's, it's like you said, the, the restore, when you kind of bring up that memory again, it, the, the restoring of that memory it changes because it you me, you will almost remember how it made you feel, mm-hmm. and then that will more so than what the event actually was because you'll remember like your perspective on that situation and you'll remember that oh this guy screwed me over and so now I hate him and then it kind of it kind of fuels the fire of itself and that's something that is incredibly flawed yeah. and that is that is something that is like incredibly painful to see because that's like. If there's something that I could reprogram about humans, it was the imposition of of mem- of a emotion in a memory so that we could have more accurate memories of things. And then, what for example, for studying, I mean, you're you're trying to memorize a bunch of things, and usually in that time, you're not very happy. You're not enjoying this thing, so you're gonna want to forget about it the next day after the exam. And and that something like that, 
where the on the flip side when we're reading something and we're enthralled by it and we're loving it you're remembering that this resonated with you so you're gonna it's gonna kind of it's gonna kind of re uh restore itself as like a fire that is uh given fuel more and more Mm -hmm. and um understanding that do understanding that actually allows us to dissociate from those emotions and understand dissociate from those thoughts. And that's something that obviously is easier with meditation and access through meditation. But I think with emotion, I think acknowledging the, the kind of the start is that you have emotions. We all do. We're humans. It's the cool. It's one of the coolest things about us is that we experience emotions is the most vivid way that any animal has ever done. And being able to then acknowledge, okay, for example, right now, I'm enjoying this experience a lot about this podcast. But in a moment, I could say, I hate this. I hate this so much. I don't want to ever do this again. And then my viewpoint of podcasts and our conversations with you or anything or conversations in general, I could generalize thing, it. Yeah, absolutely. It can, it can spread to even broader aspects oh, yeah. of circumstances and make and change the dynamic of you and the the other person or the other the the situation in itself and that's something as as we age um as a society but also as we age as just individuals i think being able to acknowledge that allows us to have a broader perspective on the circumstance uh, acknowledging that there are elements that were not great there are elements that were awesome there are elements that just existed and had no effect on my mental state and then being able to mix those together, it's it's always about like the synthesis of things for me. Oh yeah. And like for me, the quote, I don't even know if it's a quote, but just saying it all the time, good things come in moderation. Not doing too much of something is kind of what gives you the best of, of yourself. So running too much, your knees will give out, your legs will just not, your feet will break. Um, if you don't walk at all, you don't even run at all. You become your legs become weak. You become uh, fat, and you, you you don't you you don't have fitness. Your lungs get where there's a lot there's something finding the middle ground where you're running you know three times a week, four times a week, and then giving yourself days off. Mm-hmm. You're it's the same, going back to that analogy again. I mean, you're not. It's you dig the hole, you get out of the hole. You dig a little bit, you get you you get into that side, then you jump over to the other side. You get on the ladder, and you actually see. But you don't stick on the other side and then you switch everything over. You don't flip-flop. There is, there's, a, there's kind of a, a pendulum swing with yeah. yourself. Right, right. Allowing, allowing your thoughts to be malleable and mm-hmm. allowing your opinions to change is extremely important. And I think mm-hmm. it's something that, you know, I, I really respect when people can change their opinions on things, especially on, you know, sort of visceral topics because mm-hmm. it shows to me like a certain humility that, that someone someone's – able to get over themselves kind yeah. of and say, you know, I, I thought this and I might've even believed it fervently, mm-hmm. but you know, I'm now appreciating, you know, your perspective on this. And while I might not totally, it might not be totally indoctrinated into how I think from now on, like there's still elements of it that are, mm-hmm. that are valuable. I'm still better for having this discussion. Mm-hmm. And so I agree that, you know, having a healthy sense of moderation and finding, you know, you know, and just recognizing that, yeah, you should have value to the things that you're believing. You should hold to them. You should you should stand for things. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, you shouldn't be so stuck in them that you're unable to move. Mm-hmm. It's just mm-hmm. it's it can it can be very isolating mm-hmm. if if you act that way. One problem I see actually is when when that happens is that they don't they actually see the other way around. They see that um, they're so driven into their belief system or whatever it may be that 
it, everything else around them actually looks too isolated, too simplistic, and too, um, yeah. I mean, it's it seems like there's it's there's not enough nuance to 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 the, like if I were to <clears throat> have I guess if we were to flip and you were to be an incredibly um, uh, theological person driven on on your belief system purely on Judaism, and I were someone who is secular but allows for the experience or understands the experience of 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 religion to be something that is healthy there is a, there's an, a great possibility that is i have no moral grounding and you're the one who has the understanding of of a perfect knowledge of of uh of, of morality and something that it's like when i dis, when you discuss this with someone and they, and they you present them with an alternative perspective they see as like that's not enough for me. There's not. There's not. You're. It's too isolating, and there, there's no. There's no room for growth there. Right. And it's. It's like find. How do you answer? I'm not. And yeah, I'm posing the question, but it's like, I'm also finding it with myself. Is how do you help someone see it without presenting the emotional, which is the emotional perspective that is well, it's not limited. It just is. I think recognizing sometimes that you can't is mm-hmm. is important is you know not everyone is going to be you know able to to change their minds and mm-hmm. is, is going to be able to you know, i'm sure you've seen it in, in you know friends of ours maybe that like some of them you know different degrees you you'll be able to you know work with them and some people you know very stuck in their ways and, mm-hmm. and both are fine um you know obviously you prefer someone that is willing to work with you but i again i still have you know some admiration for people that oh, feel absolutely. so secure in a belief that they are just like willing to die for it yeah um and, and that's you know i don't think that's a quality that should be maintained for all of your beliefs mm-hmm. but i do but i do also maintain that there are you know some core values that you essentially need to unflaggingly stand by um mm-hmm. and and if you don't stand by those then you really lose the thread of your character and yeah. so I think those typically take shape in kind of moral issues mm-hmm. and like yeah. usually pretty simple, straightforward ones. But like you can also, and this is a general you, you can you can really just like you can take those hard lines where where you feel like it's appropriate. And mm-hmm. and again, like I have a lot of respect for people that will do that. I agree. To say like I I won't budge on this. This is this is who I am. This is this is a component of me. This is an element of like my character. Mm-hmm. And you know, it's vital. Yeah, and I and I certainly have things like that. I'm sure you do too. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, things that we just refuse to budge on. Um, yeah. But 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 the nice thing is that oftentimes those things typically are similar to the things that other people refuse to budge on, mm-hmm. and that that again lends to kind of the common ground that we all have. We, we we share very you know basic beliefs on good and bad with with most people in the world, and it really doesn't matter where you come from because you know for example, there's something that I always like to think about is like. There was a study, I think, in the early like 1900s, maybe, where um, some scientists went to Papua New Guinea and showed like pictures of like white faces um, oh. with different facial mm-hmm. expressions, and they were trying to pinpoint whether these people who had really never been exposed to Western culture are being exposed to really much outside of you know what they immediately have around them would be able to recognize these sort of 
facial expressions is universal. And they found, you know, there were a couple of reasons why the, why the, why the experiment may have been, you know, to some degree tainted. But mm-hmm. at the same time, like you still found an incredible degree of, of universality to these things. And so another, another one is like blind people smile. Why do blind people smile? Like, <laughs> yeah, know, like that doesn't That's make good. any sense. I've never mm-hmm. seen somebody smile. Like, yeah. Um, so it's just things like that where, you know, it, it's so comforting and reassuring to know that like there are some things that are, that seem like they're just kind of present in all of humans. Yeah. Yeah, no, I, I agree with that. I think um, just, eh, I don't want to, rec- I can't reconcile it now. Just mentioning our friend earlier. It was, well, that agreeing that um, having a base and sticking with that base and and like that, for the first principles and sticking with that and never allowing yourself to budge um, to a certain extent to the, to the, to the base of those, of those beliefs, I think is incredibly important. I think that's what makes, um, for very great people in this world. And they, they make a lot of change. They, um, they also allow for, um, the, that like manifestation to kind of develop in a way that, that changes, but with those first principles staying, Mm -hmm. um, and I find that very interesting with like the point you made about the, the universality of facial expressions, for example, like to an extent there's flaws in that, but overall in the overarching view of that study, there is a universal viewpoint of human facial expressions that you see or, um, yeah, of an experience of facial expressions that is, um, that is universal. And that is something that is amazing. And that's, and I think that, yeah, there's going to be certain aspects of it that are that are going to be missing. There's going to be some parts of, of for example, um, there's different facial expressions for anger, maybe, or, or, or of confusion. Maybe they, there's different versions there. But, for example, joy and sadness, like those have a base truth to them that are that are almost undeniable. Um, and I think that's kind of like going back to like the moderation. There's you're not going to get everything. You're not going to cover the whole ground, but you're going to start somewhere. And then that allows you to manifest it in a way that <clears throat> is productive and applicable to almost everyone, at least, ideally everyone, um, outside of psychopathology and other disorders of the sort. Right, and, and and I know I said the thing about blind people smiling, but it's mm-hmm. it's actually more than that. Even like blind people will like uh, if you if you watch like uh, a sporting event mm-hmm. where 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 blind people are competing, like you'll see a blind person raise their arms in and celebration, yeah. you, know, yeah. you know, give two fists in the air. You know, where is, where where is a blind from? person ever seen that? Mm-hmm. How is mm-hmm. that an association in their mind where they know, like you would have assumed that something like that would have been, would have been developed through experience, through mm-hmm. seeing somebody else do it. But it's, but that's not the case. It seems to be developed through nature. Mm-hmm. And so it's always interesting to me is like, how far does that extend? Yeah. Um, you know, yeah. what, what is like the, what are, what are the things that are just like basic among us? Yeah. Uh, and, and that sort of kind of, <clears throat> kind of continues the tabula rasa question, which is like, it's clearly not an entirely clean slate because there's, you know, there's some things that are inherent, that, that are inherent, but if they're universal, does it even matter? Interesting. And so that's, you know, it's a question. It's, yeah. it's, it's, it's it, I don't know if anyone knows. It's but. finding that line between nature and nurture. Like how far across is nature applying and how far can we just nurture? And yeah. I, I, a lot of people, you kind of see one side versus the other. Yeah. You get some very surprising outcomes from that, mm-hmm. from generally from that question <clears throat> of nature versus nurture. You'll find that like, I'm trying to remember, I think it's, so if you have, 
two twins, let's say, two identical twins that are separated at birth and live in different households. Oh, yeah, I've seen I'm, I don't want to get this wrong, but, they I, live but I'm almost certain lives. that they actually are, are, are like exceedingly similar to one mm-hmm. another than two unrelated, you know, a, a, a son and an adopted son who live in the same household, who have the same parents and the same yeah. values that are instilled in that household. You'll actually get more similarity between the twins in terms of their person obviously physically they'll look more similar but yeah. in terms of their personality, personality yeah. and the way that they act and behave um and that's just so so curious to me it's yeah. like like what do you take with that yeah. like, like yeah. it's clear that the the the, ba- the 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 literal genetic material is clearly extremely impactful mm-hmm. but it's but to what extent you know yeah. to and, and that i mean that opens up questions about like determinism and free yeah. will and like yeah. oh we haven't even gotten into that yeah <laughs> like, I'm, I'm actually it's been, crazy i'm actually pretty interested in that one and like free will and determinism oh, too it's the best and it's i like talking about this stuff if obviously I'm not the person who's going to be like opening your eyes into a new reality of life, but when it is posed in the right way, it can actually drive someone into like this entire, like asking all these questions about your reality and your, and your, and your existence that were, that were answered as just, Oh, it's free will or, Oh God just decided or, Oh, it's just determinism. And it's just that. Um, I'm still not sold on I'm, on on, yeah. on on which is true. Yeah, on, well, on if the universe is deterministic or if free will exists, I'm truly not. Sure. Yeah, I think well. So I <clears throat> there's an interesting there's two lessons on free will that on the in the waking up app that Sam Harris presents, and he's being an atheist. Obviously, he kind of has um, the more secularist view of of free will or determinism, <clears throat> and there's there's a truth to determinism that he presents um, that I agree with. That is, there are prior events that led up to this present moment that were outside of our control. Um, For example, the Christmas. There is nothing that I could have done to avoid the existing reality of Christmas Eve and Christmas Day. Um, It's, and I think there's, but the the illusion of, like he calls it the illusion of free will, which I, I kind of agree with in that there is um, there is choices that we give ourselves. I, this is not how we pose it. This is kind of what I gathered from it because that's kind of what I think is the necessary thing. Is what you what you kind of synthesize from from these lessons is uh, <clears throat> your experience. And my view is, <clears throat> if I were to linearly put it, you know, far left is free will, far right is deterministic. I would put myself almost leaning to the right. Like starting to lean to the right, so I'd say soft determinism is what it would be called. Do you and, think there's a, a middle ground where you can actually believe in both, or do you think that it's it's really one or the other? And you just mean that in terms of your opinion about what which one you think is true, you're closer to determinism. I think there is a middle ground. I just don't think I think it sways. Um, I think it depends on the circumstances. So, for example, right now, um, <clears throat> actually, I won't even use an example. I'll just say what I think, and then you kind of see what it is. Um, I think the the circumstances that we are put in are not entirely our choice, but we are given choices within those circumstances. For example, right now, mm-hmm. I have a choice to continue to explain <clears throat> to you my experience of free will or determinism. I have a choice to switch and start talking about soccer. I have a choice to turn off this podcast and go to the bathroom. I, could, I have choices that I've given myself because of <clears throat> the belief that I have free will 
and also because we're very intelligent human beings or beings in this world that allow us to have choices. But the truth of determinism is there are things that exist in our world that are outside of our control and cosmic down to the molecular that influence our experience and our reality that um, are not in our control. And so my choice that you, or the, the, the fact that you came here at 1220 versus 12 o'clock is not my choice. There's nothing I could do about that at that point. But we still started this podcast and we're still talking about this. We're still doing the podcast and there's nothing that changed. And we're still going to continue to, you know, fluidly have this conversation, ideally, in a way that <clears throat> that is that is the podcast. So I think I that's kind of where I give it is we basically if like because oh, there's also with free will is your will is your thoughts plus your actions is what you create um, is if it's purely just free. So, like, if I wanted to just fly right now, get a, just Superman out of here, I can't. Can't do it. So, that's there's things that obviously reality has limited us. So, it kind of pushes that the boundary of freedom a little bit. Like, it starts to push that boundary a lot. Um, with determinism, I also don't think that everything is outside of our choice. Um, and something that, like... I just remember, like Westworld. You know, have you have you watched Westworld? Oh yeah, yeah. You know how? You well, know, season one's great. Yeah, season one's great. <laughs> season Next one's two, incredible. Not great. It's incredible. Oh my goodness. And so you see the coding of I think it's Maggie, the um, she's the British woman. Oh, Maeve. You see her Maeve. Yeah. You see her. You see how her. Remember that there's a scene where her vo- words keep getting. It uh-huh. looks like coding. Yeah. That's something that determinism speaks some truth to. But I don't think it's the entire thing. I don't think we're just the way I structure my words are because of my prior experiences of of language and how I speak. So it pushes it into like somewhere here that is okay because of my experiences as a child up to now. I have I have I speak a certain way. My voice sounds this way, and my the my vocabulary is limited to what I know, and then. And then, but within that, I'm within the that realm of my vocabulary and my my uh, react my my manifestation of myself. I'm given choices. That's where I get, I think there's free will, and that's the choices that we give ourselves. It's it's not about how many choices you have. It's just the the fact that there are choices. I'm given choices. I'm given a, an opportunity to make a decision. Just just start cursing if I wanted to, rather than trying to be trying to be more eloquent and trying to be more descriptive in my experience. Mm-hmm. And so it's it's a hard thing to, to to say because it's a kind of going back like moderation. I'm not trying to just say it. we're purely free. I'm not I'm not gonna I'm not Superman, so I can't do everything in the world ever. But I'm also not limited. By a, by a greater force that is deciding my all, all moves. And, and kind of this speaks to like why I'd say I'm an atheist is because I believe with my like concept of God. I don't think God is a thing. Like I, I think God is a thing. I don't think it's a person. I don't think people saying God is this guy or this, this woman or this, this the in like Egyptian gods. So there's the animal figurehead with the human body. I don't think there's actually a figure for it, I think it is the the relationship between space and time, and and then <clears throat> human relationship kind of mixed into and, and energy. That's like space and time and energy with human human reality and uh, 
kind of created into one one truth that is experience. Mm -hmm. And so and that's a subjective thing. Experience is purely subjective. So that's why I like to say it like that. It's a bit wordy for someone instead of just saying God. But it's it kind of speaks to that that free will versus determinism thing that is there is something that has an over overarching control, but it doesn't control everything. And within that not everything that it's the, the limitations of that control is where we get that free will. Uh-huh. Now what what I don't know, what's your take on? Well, I'm I'm torn because my science I think science indicates determinism. Mm. And that's sort of a tough thing to wrap your head around because it's so hard like to understand. Like you said, like I have an incredible amount of choice in what the next thing that comes out of my mouth is. Um, so it's sort of hard to reconcile, but the justification for why determinism is true. Remember, remember I was telling you about the loaf of bread, the universe is a loaf yeah, of bread yeah, over yeah. the summer. I'll try, I will try to oversimplify it, yeah, but it's, if it's I, fun. if I do that, it's going to make it sound like I'm making a lot of logical abstractions <laughs> that, that, that I hope some, the listener will recognize that yeah. are, that are supported by something. You can dig in if you want Yeah, to. well, it's, it's, it's basically, I also don't want to misportray anything, which sure. is why I'm going to keep it pretty basic. But essentially, if you view the universe as this loaf of bread and each individual slice of that loaf is just like a moment in time, mm -hmm. you're basically jumping from slice to slice to slice to slice to slice over and over again in a way that sort of creates, I'm not going to say the illusion of time because time does exist, but like it essentially creates, of time. It creates the experience of time, right? Mm -hmm. you, you, you see things moving in a certain direction. Entropy seems to, you know, exist. In yeah, a way. seems to manifest. Yeah. So, but the thing that happens when you start applying the fact there, there's a couple of things that you would kind of need to establish beforehand that come from Einstein's theories of relativity, mm -hmm. basically about each reference frame. So, so one of the major things was that people can have different reference frames of something and see something differently from another person, mm -hmm. and both can be true, and both are true. Actually, mm -hmm. it's not even that both can be, yeah, it's that both okay. necessarily are true. Mm -hmm. So there's there's this famous example where um, there's a train traveling at some fraction of the speed of light, um, and it's got lightning rods on the front end of the train and the back end of the train, um, and somebody's standing exactly in the middle of the train, whereas somebody is standing as standing on the side as the train car passes, okay. and they see the strikes of lightning. Essentially, basically, the person who's inside of the train is going to see simultaneity, and the, the two strikes occur at the same time, okay. and the person outside of it is going to see them happen one after another. Mm. Uh, it could be vice versa. I you know It, it really doesn't matter. Yeah. The point is, though, that, that different reference frames can be different and yet true. And so with that assumed, and also with the fact that we know that, you know, the the addition of acceleration and velocity leads to some sort of curvature of space-time um, we can know that or some sort of time dilation mm -hmm. then we know that um, that that essentially when there's time dilation occurring over such a massive distance that can lead to a pretty pretty different amount like different perception of time essentially two people over an extreme distance and I'm talking about like across you know several galaxies like really far away experience are experiencing time at a different time from one another mm -hmm. uh, are experiencing the present at a different time at from different one time another time. so what that ends up happening so if you're imagining sl slicing the loaf of bread in a perfectly perfectly in parallel so that each slice is like perfectly 
you know, just clean and just mm-hmm. how you would normally expect it. Imagine now you're curving that, you're, 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 you're bending that knife a bit so that one end of that knife might be a little bit further ahead than the other side. Mm-hmm. Um, and the more distance, the more that angle changes. Mm-hmm. Essentially what that proves is that someone who's experiencing what you're perceiving as the past and they're perceiving as the present, that's existing for them, that's real for them. And what you're experiencing, which is further ahead in time, quote unquote, is also real. Mm-hmm. Um, so now take now take yourself, which is that person who's further ahead in time, and change your perspective to the person who's further back in time. Essentially, what that person would be perceiving you as is in the future, because yeah. their present is essentially your past. They will experience what you will experience, or it's, you have. Well, experienced it, it's what you're. So yeah, it's, you're currently. Yeah. you're just you're you're literally, and it's not because of a distance that that the speed of light has to travel or anything like that. Mm-hmm. It's genuinely that the times are different. Yeah, um, and what that seems to indicate is that if somebody in the present can, if they could theoretically perceive you in the future, mm-hmm. then. Does that mean the future is deterministic? Because it's still their future, and yet they seem to be able to recognize and actually point to something that's concretely occurring in the future. And so there is a belief of, and, and it, it's it, it directly brings into question presentism versus eternalism, which just says either the present is the only thing that exists, and we're constantly moving from present to present to present to present with these kind of slices in the loaf of bread, mm-hmm. or eternalism eternalism exists where the past is just as real as the present as it is the future and that each exists um but the difference is is that our ability to actually access these things is not something that we currently possess obviously Mm -hmm. um and it's a really tough question because scientifically speaking it would seem to favor eternalism which is that you know the present the future and the past are all real and all existent and all technically occurring um and really for that to be true you kind of need to know the future already needs to be established it already needs to be real in order for that to be true Hmm. so that kind of means that the decisions that you make leading up to it are deterministic um but there's a lot of different things that involve like when you say when you were talking about with when you you have a choice about what you say next Mm -hmm. you have a choice about what you do and a lot of people point to the butterfly effect as an example of like how free will and kind of chaos theory occur um, because a butterfly's wings flapping in South Africa might lead to, you know, a giant windstorm in New York City or whatever it is. Um, and so people say like, oh, look at that, a tiny, tiny thing, like Lentil. like like the language that you're choosing right now seems to have, seems to potentially have huge macro influence. And so what people say in response to that is, what if all those things are occurring? What if what if all of the choices that are in your head actually do occur, um, and the the one that you essentially elect when discussing when when speaking with me is essentially determining the avenue of existence that sort of cascades as a result of that. Yeah. So all of those things essentially, it, this is where multiverse theory comes from. Is that like when you make a choice, any choice, you have. A splitting of paths yeah and so when you so you like maybe in one of those paths you do start cursing just yeah. like non-stop right now mm-hmm. and the results play out and play out over that span but we're we're not on that trajectory so we you know we're not really related to it but a lot of people think that yeah it's real it's real if the universe is infinite and and 
everything is occurring at some some point in some place, then then yeah, that's that's happening too. And so it sort of reconciles the butterfly effect with determinism, um, based on the fact that you know everything's happening, um, and, and essentially which avenue you travel down is based on your decision, but mm. it's still all real and still all there. So okay. it's 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 just yeah. it's so hard. I don't I don't even know. If, yeah. I don't even know if I buy it. Like that's one of this is this is one of those things where it just feels like. Clearly, science hasn't fleshed this out fully. Oh, <laughs> like, absolutely. There's clearly got to be more that's going on here. There's, there's like, a line that is we're basi- missing. Yeah, we're just basically understanding it. Yeah. Well, that's interesting how your perspective is much more on, the, on a broader scale. You see you see the, 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 like with the butterfly effect and, and seeing also how um, the, the, the loaf of bread analogy also, or the metaphor, how there is an experience there that is made but it's not necessarily influenced by the individual. It's more things occurring in time. Um, and so how do you see that in relation to yourself? And as in the choices, like, do you see that having an in, do you see the choices you make as the, as choices or do you see them as simply something that was to someone else could have been in the future to someone else has already happened. And to you, it's current, it's occurring right now. The way I like to think about it for myself, and this could very well be a cop out, but um, it's just sort of the the mindset I take generally um, is that it's real if it matters to you. It's real mm. if it's real if you think it is. Okay. Um, and so I apply that towards essentially just how I conduct myself is saying like if I want to if I want to be a certain thing I need. To believe that I am that I need mm. to like if I if I want to be confident then I need to truly believe that I that I'm that I need to be confident in order to really pro- project that honestly. Yeah. Um, and it's a very similar thing to this which is that like I'm I can't say for certain whether the choices that I make are actually truly my own but part of me thinks that it doesn't matter because if it's real to me intrinsically then it's then it's as real as anything else. Yeah. Who's to say like what's make that any more or less real than something tangible? Um, and if we're and if we're gonna have a healthy skepticism towards everything, then we kind of can, we can see that's true. Hmm. Because like why 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 should I assume that I know for certain this or that or anything? Um, I prefer to think that you know, my what I exude and what I think comes from what I feel intrinsically. Interesting. Yeah. No, that, I mean, I actually understand that a lot because with, um, well, not, I mean, I understand it, but I, I, I conceptualize that and, you know, spiritually, quote unquote, feel that more so because there is an element that is, you can explain it to me in a hundred thousand different ways and I still won't believe you and I still won't feel that it is real and whatever it may be, something that someone else is experiencing solely because I just cannot feel it the same way you, you can, um, which is is something that doesn't uh, doesn't apply all the time, but I think does on on the moral, not necessarily moral, but also but also interpersonal interactions. I think um, being able to accept there's there's a kind of a gray area there of experience that is, like you said, two subjective experiences are both true. Um, that's the beauty of subjectivity, but it's also the nuance and the difficulty of subjectivity because what is science then what is what is universality if there is no such thing if there is just subjectivity um, right there there very well may not be honestly mm-hmm. uh, a lot of a lot of what i was trying to 
a lot of what we were questioning are actually, well, a lot of how we were framing certain thinkers in this philosophy of space and time class was how did they, did they view space and did they view time as absolute or did they view it as relative? Mm. And so that question's obviously been answered different ways throughout time. Yeah. And the most, the most lead, the leading theory now being that space and time separately are in fact relative. Um, and we can see that with, you know, time dilation and things like that. Um, but there is the presence of something that sort of connects these two concepts, mm. and that would be the presence of space-time, which is seen as sort of like the fabric of the universe. Mm. And that may be absolute. But again, like, to say anything's absolute is yeah. just, it's, 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 it's extreme because it's not really falsifiable for mm. that reason. It's not, it's not easy. You can't prove it. Um, certainly not yet. So there's there's so much there's so much there that's just based on your interpretation of the information that's given to you mm -hmm. and the acceptance and the understanding that it's not the entire picture and that you need to remain open and, and maintain that you know that healthy skepticism but um you know I, I remember when i was like in this class and was learning about determinism and learning that it's like kind of the leading theory about what's going on like i was kind of i kind of asked myself the same thing i was like wait does anything matter then mm -hmm. like like what's the point of all this yeah. and, and so that's when i sort of reached the conclusion that like it's what i want it to be everything's subjective everything's yeah. based on just the projection of your experience and, and what's going on so you know it's i i felt perfectly comfortable with saying it matters if I think it does. And that's and, the and choice. That's, and that's enough. Yeah. I think that's the choice that you're given there. I yeah. think, and that's, to some people, that's purely free will because things are happening that are outside your control and obviously, and that, that is life. That's fine. But I think the choices you get to make emotionally and, and mentally and thoughtfully, you can, um, you can, that, you can guide them in any way you like. And I think the way that the, it's hard to say where is the, the again, like the, the universe, the absolute in that. Um, but it's definitely an interesting thing to dive into because okay. it's like you kind of just trail off into these, these like hundreds of different, of pa different paths that you could go into. And, and there's, there's a lot of room for variation of answers. Mm -hmm. um, but to, I kind of want to circle back on something about um, with theology, yeah. but more so with like spirituality, uh, the idea of with like, kind of connecting meditation and mm -hmm. and this sense of interconnectedness or this sense of and also in 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 uh understanding free will and determinism how do you see um for example and i don't i don't know the extent of your investment in judaism but how do you see that influence your sense of spirituality it's tough because a lot of questions in the class remained unanswered. Um, for example, one of the ones we kind of ended with was like, "How can how can something come from nothing? How how can this sort of big bang, which seems to be the start of all creation, including the creation of time itself, like how can that come from nothing? And how can there be something before it that's occurring where time is not yet existent? Like." Mm. It's just so hard to conceptually understand. And there was no clear answer to that. And so there, there still is, for a lot of people, this sort of quote-unquote wiggle room where they can kind of put God in as the answer. Um, and so, you know, I'm not totally, totally sold on what I believe is like, how did something come from nothing? And yeah. sort of the theory of the first mover is like, uh, is, is related to that. And so, like, yeah, I, I do assign kind of God there. Um, and... 
so there, there definitely is room for faith in, in, a, in a divine power, but there's most certainly room for the spirituality of, of Judaism either way. Mm. Even, even if you know, all the questions of the universe are answered, I still think there's room for the spirituality because there's so much value to it. It promotes these tenets of just goodness and, and, yeah. and, mor- and morality. And so I think it always it always exists, and then it's just a continuous reevaluation of which parts of the scripture you're taking as literal and which parts of the scripture you're taking as, you know, teachable lessons. Mm-hmm. Um, and so there is currently, because we haven't answered all the questions of the universe and we're not very far along, I think there's a lot of room to answer with God. Mm-hmm. Um, and I've wondered if religion is going to kind of kind of taper out as a result of us getting closer and closer and, and solving more things definitive, definitively. Because mm-hmm. in the past, obviously, I think religion played a much more direct role in people's lives. If you look at, you know, Middle Ages, Dark Ages, Enlightenment even, there's still a huge emphasis on religion. And I think that's very much related to the fact that, like, it was very difficult for them to understand what was going on, you know, in, in 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 outer space like like how do you even how do you even reconcile that like how do you even conceptualize outer space as someone who's never like never seen anything never seen a photo of it never seen anything like and so the more and more that we understand the more it seems like the 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 questions that we used to answer with with god Mm -hmm. we answer now with science um but we're just still so so early in that path that there's still so much that we can answer now with god and i and i and i remain curious to see if if that starts to evaporate a little bit or if that maintains because that will you know kind of answer you know were people you know on something or were they not yeah no it's interesting to think about that the like what will religion be once all answers are are, are all questions are answered right. with science right because I, I think that's a huge component of why religion was incepted was number one to create a system of like moral and ethical values that people could live by number two to instill a little bit of fear in people yeah. that, that that someone was watching even behind closed doors and that would incentivize them to behave you know ethically mm-hmm. uh and number three it was an answer to to an incredible amount of questions that were just unanswerable. hugely unanswerable yeah. because of a lack of technology a lack of understanding a lack of everything um so I, I remain very curious to see like how that dynamic changes and how it might maintain. Um, and, and, and I do hope that, you know, religion does maintain as, as something that's important in people's lives. And I, and I don't think it would be the worst thing if, if religion was perceived more as an ethical doctrine than a literal scripture. That's what I was, I was actually about to ask was the, the ethics of things, because I mean, science kind of the the interesting thing about science is it's it tries to be objective, so mm-hmm. it tries to to remove ethical um, values from the equation to just have the most real sense of something. Mm-hmm. And when let's say in this hypothetical situation that we were to find all the answers to metaphysical truths about consciousness and about uh, quantum mechanics and and uh, time and space and kind of the relationship of all of those and energy and things and and um, yeah and all these all these kind of questions that science is trying to answer but we we still stick to philosophy and, and the metaphysical thought processes where like at what point I guess 
will will there be and I don't know how to pose this question because it's basically going to be where ethics has to exist in a society and um, for the longest time it has been grounded in religion and that um, and kind of the argument for people who uh, for those who are religious towards those who are atheists to say you have no moral grounding the thing is is that we've existed in society for long enough now that we kind of have an understanding of what to do and what not to do don't own slaves don't cut people's hands off like there's things that we understand from from past experiences from other people's experiences that we know not to do and it's like where there's going to be a point where um I mean, it's already happened. We're seeing that religion is getting, or science is answering questions for religion. Mm -hmm. And there's going to be a point where science is going to get almost everything except the ethical parts. And at what, and, and, and basically I'm trying to see like, what point is there going to be an acceptance where, okay, we'll stick with just the ethical, we'll stick with just the first principles, the tenets of ethical um, truths, <clears throat> in in religion but everything else is disbelief and there's a problem there is because when there's like for example in the quran you can't um I, obviously i don't want to like misframe this but i think it's kind of driven around you can't edit it there's no changing and i think this is in all religious scriptures there's no changing of the scripture um there's only your interpretation of that scripture and that's it and but there's going to be a point where there's going to be all these secular answers to these metaphysical questions that are um, outside of the boundaries of man. Mm -hmm. And once that happens, is religion just going to say, nah, that's it. You suck. And we don't need it anymore because we have these moral groundings. Are we going to stick with them? Because we, we kind of acknowledge that that is where morality came from. And it's kind of an, it's hard to see where that goes. Yeah, I think that I think that that effect is already occurring a little bit because you know as we answer more and more questions, especially the ones that used to be attributed to divine power, mm -hmm. we kind of take a little bit away from religion in a sense. Um, but 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 I still think that the ethical boundaries that religion provides are going to remain relevant, um, and it will just become more of teachable lessons than. Than, than a divineness. Yeah, than a than a direct reading, mm -hmm. or sort of interpreting everything so literally. Um, but with that being said, I think that in many ways the foundation of society kind of, in some ways, replaced some of the ethical value of religion um, because society essentially most most social contract theorists agree that society is formed because people buy into it with informed consent, understanding that it's for everyone's mutual benefit, mm -hmm. that it's going to lead to a better, a better creation, a better, better well, civilization for everybody. Um, and with that, there comes, you know, a set of laws and, and regulations and, and those laws and regulations are essentially based on, you know, preventing bad and evil and, yeah. and creating good and, mm -hmm. and doing things that are that are appropriate versus inappropriate. Mm -hmm. And so that's very similar to what religion was trying to do by saying, you know, these Ten Commandments, this is how you should act. You should act in accordance with these. These are things you should avoid. It's very similar to what, you know, our legal system, what our Constitution says, what our, what our laws are, what our amendments yeah. say. And so the difference there is that 
and one of the things that I find so valuable about religion that I touched on briefly about why it was formed is that no one can really like no no one can stop you from doing something privately um, that's illegal, wrong, immoral, like terrible. You could do you could do horrible atrocities, and if you don't get caught, then like does it really quote unquote matter if it was illegal in the first place? Because yeah. like you know didn't didn't change the outcome. Exactly. Um, and that's and that's where I think religion falls in as being a really valuable thing because it it, it encourages people to remain good and remain. Mm you know, these, these upstanding citizens, even when people aren't watching. And that might just be because there's that little nagging threat that someone up there is watching, or it might just be because like, look, this is what I've subscribed to. These are the things I believe they, Mm -hmm. they resonate with me. They feel right with me. Mm -hmm. And so this is how I'm going to act. And and I prefer to think it's that one. Yeah. That, that that people just say, you know what, I got to buy into something. These are, these are sort of my unfledging moral code. And and it's gonna re- it's gonna remain whether people are watching or not. I remember I remember John Body used to say character is uh, what you do when no one's watching. Yeah, and I always like that because I because I find it very true. It and rings so true. For it sure. might just it might just be that people you know you gotta like I said you gotta stand for something and so you gotta you, you gotta be consistent mm-hmm. even when people aren't watching. It's mm-hmm. it's it's important to yourself if no one else. Yeah, and so I think that you know. It will definitely be interesting to see how religion continues to transition and pivot. But I think it's definitely already on its way. Yeah, for sure. Um, something about religion that you mentioned, like then you've I, you mentioned multiple times now, I think is interesting, is that the nagging threat <laughs> that um, exists in people that it's that little voice telling you like, don't do it. It's not good for you. Or there's, there's kind of, or do this cause, or, or try this or it, there's kind of that. Or God is watching. Or God is watching. Exactly. Yeah. There's, there's, there's something like, Oh, don't do this or something's going to happen or mm-hmm. do this and you're going to, something good is going to happen. Right. Um, and I've heard that before. I've heard that presented before in different ways. And, um, I think it's the, the most interesting to me is that it's a natural part of our existence. That, that is, there's that voice saying you should go, for example, you're sitting in bed like this happens. I've had this happen many times. I'll sit in bed and I'll just sit on my phone for an hour, and I'll be like, "You should get up. You should go meditate. You should go work out. You should go. Re- you should do something. Do something to be productive." Mm-hmm. It's not even about being good or bad at this point. It's about being a person and doing things that, per, you know, are productive in your life. Um, do you think that is a? I mean, I think I believe it's a natural part of us. I think that is that that voice that is telling us. You should be doing this. You should go do this. You shouldn't be doing these things. Um, do you, what do you think of the nature of that? I think that human beings have a desire to obtain things that make them feel good and avoid things that make them feel bad. Mm. And I think that that is the primary driver for what you're describing, where where you're looking to maximize your productivity. You're looking to recognize things as unproductive. I think that's based in that, where you're saying... I recognize that if I were to go meditate right now, if I were to go read, I'd probably feel better. I'd feel more accomplished. I'd feel like I did something productive. And mm-hmm. that comes from, you know, what you define in yourself as productive. Mm-hmm. And and I agree with you that, you know, compared to sitting on your phone, I wouldn't like I, I struggle with the same thing where it's like, what could I be doing right now that's actually gonna be valuable? Yeah. Um and and I think that's the basis of most human behavior, where mm. where we're just avoiding things that are bad, and we're trying to obtain things that are good. Mm. Um, and that even like even in concepts like altruism, where it looks like 
where it looks like people are just doing good for the sake of being good. Yeah. A lot of people will argue that altruism is actually still kind of a selfish behavior because you're mm. doing it to generate this feeling of goodness inside of you. Mm. You're looking for that feeling of accomplishment, satisfaction, productivity, whatever you want to call it. Yeah. Um, and I don't love saying that because I think it gives altruism kind of a bad look because I, I still think that the core foundation for why people that do things that are altruistic is to help others and that that feeling of helping others feels good to you too mm-hmm. that's and i well i don't want to cut you off but i think no 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 i was done <laughs> well altruism and um <clears throat> that like the sense that oh it's just it's doing good to feel good i think i think that always will exist i think that that element of um going and being a tr- uh, an athletic trainer and teaching kids how to how to lift weights correctly or teaching um, students English, teaching students how to write, teaching people things and, and helping people, donating money, doing these philanthropic um, uh, acts. I think there will always be an element of self-fulfillment that is granted, um, but I think that's the beauty of it because it's not supposed to be a two way, a one way street. It's not just I'm giving you my money and now I feel bad about it. It's like no, I'm giving you my money and I feel good and I feel like I'm actually doing something in the world and I actually that makes me feel a little better right. because if you I mean why would anyone do philanthropy if it just makes them feel bad about themselves? Right. There's a there's a sense of self that has to be fueled there that goes both ways without go and it's kind of that moderation. You don't want to be just giving your money because it makes you feel good. You want to be giving your money because it makes you feel good and you're helping a society, you're helping a group. Right. And it's not the it's not the action of giving the money that's making you feel good. It's the action of helping somebody mm-hmm. else, which is what's generating that positive feeling mm-hmm. inside the of you. The effect of giving And that's money. a good thing. That's yeah. a great thing when you're saying, I'm brightening somebody else's life. In the example of giving a little bit of money, you're saying, this person needs this money more than me. Like, I... I feel like this is productive i think it's positive i'm happy to help i'm happy to contribute and 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 that makes all those things make you feel good mm-hmm. and, and that feeling can really last mm-hmm. as well where it's just it's powerful it's impactful yeah. and so i you know i i feel like i'm inspired more often to do more good for people because it really you know it really does make me feel good too mm-hmm. i think it makes everyone feel good <laughs> That's the goal. Um, yeah. I, I don't like I don't like when there's that oversimplicity of, of oh you're just doing it for your ego or oh you're just doing it to build your status. It's like I think that is yes there are people who that 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 is kind of the goal um, that there's they don't appre- they only appreciate the the byproduct of philanthropy as being a status uplifter or this that and the other. Um, but yeah, I mean it's. Um, it's interesting to see that with with like morality and and interactions and things and how we we're always going to get at something out of our interactions with people and it's making sure that there is a mutual benefit there that isn't falling falling to one side and maintaining a, a balance there um, that allows for some growth that allows for some flexibility and um, yeah. That's no, pretty good. Totally, I agree. I think it's it's not just altruism that that makes you feel that way. It's 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 remaining true to your to your values. It's mm-hmm. it's doing it's 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 it ties back to that you know concept of character when you're doing things that you know or that you know are appropriate when no one's watching. It's just those types of things generate good feelings because they they reduce dissonance. Um, mm-hmm. It's the most important thing about them is that you know when you do something bad. 
and you just feel badly about it, there's this, you know, this distance in your head. Yeah, it's that you're, voice. You're, you're trying to reduce it. It's just discomfort. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it's it's obviously obviously easier just to not do things that are that are going to generate that. But yeah. you know, there's a flip side to it as well because I think that people can be overly self-critical at times to the point where it's unhealthy. Yeah. And I think that there's value to not getting into those negative thinking patterns as well where you're just continuously, you know, bearing down on yourself because I don't think that's productive either. Mm-hmm. So, so there's, there's got to be a balance where you're pushing yourself to be a better person, but you're forgiving yourself when you, when you come short of that mm-hmm. and you try not to do it yeah. you know, too much. There's um, an interesting perspective. I actually, before you got here, I did a little meditating and there was a, the, the cool thing about the app is that they, he, he speaks throughout it, not the whole time, you know, there'll be like a minute or two in the beginning and then another minute or two in the middle. And it's, I mean, his voice is very calming, but he presented a point that it was just let things be as they are and that, and kind of accepting that, that objective quote unquote um reality and perspective of um they're not real yeah objective objective um circumstance that gives you a there's there's that balance there where you see things as they are you're allowed to have the subjective experience that is that is not entirely um entirely positive or negative and then there's also the alternative that is disagreeing with that subjective experience and so there's, there's a flip side of that mm-hmm. um and something that i think I, I i struggle and i bet many people struggle as well is that there's some days where you feel bad about yourself there's some days you feel great about yourself so you're kind of switching the pendulum swings and um something that meditating has given me access to is seeing the pendulum, knowing it's there, but stepping away and remembering I'm still a person and that I, I have a level of control to my experience that allows me to maneuver within it. Right. And um, it's, it's beautiful. Right. And I think very often those, like, those good days and those bad days are very much related to just kind of very small occurrences, kind of isolated events in those days where, you know, just like a bad five minutes almost is is ruining your day because you're allowing that kind of negative thinking cycle to compound. You're you're making it worse. Whereas by meditating, for example, you can sort of step back from that and say, mm-hmm. "All right, let me just breathe for a little bit. Yeah. You know, let me let me return back to kind of stasis and 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 work from there." Mm. Um, and so I think that that's really valuable. Um, and it's it's much more fortified because. You know, it means that, you know, whether you're feeling outrageously happy or outrageously, you know, just down, there's still something outside of that that mm-hmm. you can return to. And so that you can view that with, a, with an impartial light. You're not judging it. You're not necessarily even associating with it. You're just recognizing it. Mm-hmm. And so I think that that's, you know, that will that really will help people, I think, when they're, you know, struggling with something to say, all right, that happened. That's in my past now. It does not have to dictate my future. Let me let me return to that feeling of calmness and comfort, and, and essentially build back up from there. Mm. And so, like that's that's you know one of the ways that I use meditation is to say like, all right, if, if things haven't been going well, like I'm just gonna revert. Or you know, it doesn't even need to be that way. It doesn't need to be after things have started going poorly. It's just saying like, let when me get they're up. happening. Yeah, let me let me just let me just uh, you know focus on my mindset let me just see where i am and mm-hmm. and recognize that you know, i i am more than my thoughts and that's there, a powerful thing 
Yeah, no, that's definitely um, your always more than your thoughts because you are you can you can maneuver outside of those thoughts but um there's something that um that has been imposed more and more in this app as well and 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 i've been trying to uh influence on myself is the idea of being meditating at any point in time so as of like um right now you know calming yourself down just because you can feel your hands, you feel your feet, you feel your butt, you feel your back, you feel your head, you feel physical experience. And that remembers that it reminds you that you're here, you're, you're here now. And it reminds me of that book you told me, um, Ram Das, the Be Here, now, Be here yeah. now. Great book. And it's, I'm, I'm definitely going to read it. It's definitely, I've, um, I've started listening to some of his, his teachings on this website that, my friend who was on this podcast actually seems yeah yeah he uh he got me into this whole it's 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 an expansive website it's called gaia.com and it has teachings of ramdas and uh and they there's that that presence of mind that allows for uh you to just settle yourself down so there's kind of if your experience is a wavelength and it's kind of the the frequency is con is very much in a in a, an incredible fluctuation. Being able to tap into just the the flattening, calming sense of of self that is your your physical meat body, <laughs> and, and it's a, it's a, it's an interesting idea when I think of it like that because it's like the spaceship that you experience is your meat body. Oh yeah. And then you, the astronaut it's is like the a vehicle. Brain. Exactly, and that's the vehicle of experience. And when you can relax that experience and remember that it is it is good to be alive it is great to be alive and that it is unique to be alive um that's it also goes back it's to rare the, to be alive as uh, well yeah it's yeah it's um but it's it goes into the um it goes also back to the experience of you know like uh differing ideologies i mean you have to to be able to experience other people's experiences in any sort of level, you have to be able to remember that you're still yourself and then step out of that and step out of it mentally and physically. Absolutely. I think that's, I think that's where people sometimes fail to see the lasting value of meditation mm -hmm. is thinking that it's something that only affects you while you're like Doing sitting it. in a dark room with yeah, your eyes yeah. closed, focusing on your breathing. It's a lot more than that. It's yeah. about, you know, Oh, well, you're always doing it. Yeah. You, you gotta be utilized. Yeah. And I think what, You've, it sounds like you've found that I'm still kind of working on finding because I just haven't been doing it enough and haven't been doing it consistently enough is that you find it more and more just kind of passively occurring in your day, right? Where yeah. you're, just, you're just more cognizant, you're more present, you're more, you know, you're, you're, just, you're, you're more thankful for the moment that you have in front of you. And you're not, you know, you're not fixating on anything, you're not thinking about the future or the past or anything else. You're, you're here. And I that's, try. That's why, that's why I appreciate mm -hmm. the saying, be here now so much, is because like, that's kind of like the mantra I'm looking for. It's mm -hmm. like, be here now. Mm -hmm. It's such a simple sounding thing, but it's so outrageously difficult. To experience, yeah. Yeah, it's, yeah. it's like, to, well, certainly it's outrageously difficult to experience like in mass, like to do it a ton. Mm -hmm. um, and, and really no one can do it always, but, but to be able to do it more and more and more, to, to physically say I am here and like that's the only thing that's real that's the only thing that's existing is this moment yeah 
uh, it's, it's tough, but it's powerful. Yeah. And it's, and it's so worthwhile if you can get there. Yeah. It's very grounding. Um, oh, yeah. it's something that I find some days is very difficult to access some days. It's, it's something like a door, like the door opens, the door closes. Sometimes it's a swinging door. Sometimes it's a sliding door. Sometimes it's a glass door so I can see it, but I can't feel it. Uh-huh. And it's an interesting, like today versus yesterday versus tomorrow, how my experience of the present is going to change. Um, I mean, when, when in, in just moment to moment, I think there's like the influence of emotion that plays into that experience. That is something that is what it comes down to for me, at least in, in my, my experience. Obviously, if, if you don't know, I have ADHD. And so I, my, my, my availability to jump from one thought to the other is much greater than a, a regular person. Not that I am a regular, it doesn't matter. It's, but um, that, that kind of thing where I, atta- I can attach and then jump off and it's just so many different trains running at the same time that um, acknowledging that, not, not on a conceptual level, but on a spiritual level, on, on, a, on a feel, I, I hate the word spirituality, but it's a, it's a good word when, it's, when you understand it, that is the feeling that you experience from acknowledging something and, and, and seeing it happen. Um, being able to do that and then seeing the whole spectrum of experience and then remember and then kind of grounding yourself again and and kind of falling back into the the first steps of experience is is something that i find very difficult but worthwhile um i mean even like when we were talking about the 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 little momentary meditations that you can have i had a little focus on my breath focus on my sense my physical sensations and then coming back to hey i'm in a podcast right now and this is fun and i'm enjoying this and right. i think and it's it's something that and doesn't let you get so wrapped up in things right and one of the things that i found so uh, number one i think that the psychology classes that i've taken at penn have probably been my favorites mm. just because they've been so impactful on how i think about things mm-hmm. um but something that stuck with me was about this concept of like what is what exactly is emotion like what is what is the feeling of expressing emotion for example the the because because there's a part of it that's that's a physical sensation it's it's about arousal and valence where it's like the strength of it and the positivity of it Um, but there's more to it because essentially there's an ambiguous stimulus that exists um and then you sort of assign a label to it Mm -hmm. and that becomes the emotion it's not that each emotion has a different physiological feeling to it it's that it's actually a rather ambiguous stimulus and you then take from it what you want so so it's interesting that like your physical sensation like if you're feeling like a little bit of like jitteriness in your stomach you Mm -hmm. can be interpreting that in vastly different ways you could be saying that's excitement and anticipation and you're like looking forward to something or it can be anxiety and discomfort and fear Mm -hmm. and nervousness and so it's really kind of up to you in that way and i think that meditation is really good for number one kind of you know when i start focusing on my breathing i can sort of feel the body relax Mm -hmm. and all of a sudden like i can sort of have a little bit more say over the like physical experience um, but then the assigning of that experience as well is completely then up to you. 
mm-hmm. um, because because you essentially are then in control of it. Mm-hmm. And so again, these are these are things that like you achieve when you're really good at meditation. Yeah, and I, and I really can't say I'm fully there yet, but um, but Same. you know, but I but I but I certainly see the value in in working, mm-hmm. and, and I and I and I think that most people would agree that the twenty minutes or however long you would spend with meditation is valuable enough than than 20 minutes you would spend doing something else mm-hmm. it's it's worthwhile even if even if it's tough to say all right i'm gonna do this for 20 minutes it might yeah. be boring but it might you know it might be hard for me to focus but it's necessary yeah. and and i think that i always leave it with saying you know that was more valuable than 20 minutes i could have spent on my phone reading even like yeah. doing really anything mm-hmm. and so it's it's worth sticking with yeah for sure for sure um Something you reminded me was the also like looking at it as something that um, is is not an alternative, but just is. It's an interesting, it's like a weird, con- not a weird concept, just an interesting concept that is like once you're in it, you're just doing it. There's no, there's no added salt, pepper, emotion, this, that, the other, water, you, you just, it is what it is. And once you've, you can establish that there's so much room for, for possibility of experience that, um, when you're, when you're attached to your, to your, um, mental experience, you kind of limit yourself to, because maybe you don't like a person very much. Maybe you don't like, um, the place you are very much. Maybe you don't like, the clothes you're wearing and, and that thing that automatically adds a, uh, a layer that um, meditation can strip away mm-hmm. and you can and you see the rawness of something um, mm-hmm. and then that gives you and that can feel actually very overwhelming to some people mm-hmm. when you're given a, a, an immense amount of choices on um, on your on yourself it's the greatest thing you can do is have a choice on how you feel about something um, and when you when when I and I hear this I hear people say this a lot of time it's like oh you're giving or like that something like it blank gives me anxiety and I've heard that so many times and I think that's something that like the more I hear it the more I notice it and the more I notice it the more I'm like why <laughs> it is it's like it's obviously something so simple to me because um, I hear it so I don't say it I hear it more often than I say it um, and being able to figure out how to not necessarily explain to someone, but allow them to be like, something gives you the anxiety. It's like, but it doesn't force you to have anxiety. You're not, nothing makes anxiety out of you. You make anxiety out of yourself and from that, and, and plus the experience. Absolutely. I think um, this is a pretty popular kind of analogy, but like if your mind is is your mind if it is a ship on the sea like if you're if you're a boat or a ship it doesn't really matter how you know turbulent the waves are how rocky it is if if the ship's fortified then you're fine you're mm-hmm. not going to sink mm-hmm. and so it's kind of just about reinforcing yourself and saying you know I'm you know I'm bigger than this I'm more I'm more than this you know these these things that you know appear all encompassing can actually be kind of trivial if you just take a step back Mm -hmm. and so that's not always the case there's there's times like i i always like to delineate the difference between like fear and danger because like fear is not necessary fear is something that you create um danger is real like like you gotta you gotta be able to recognize that and like 
fear is is an appropriate response to danger. Mm-hmm. But you know, if you can recognize danger without feeling the fear, then like that's that's good too. Yeah, I think like emotion is like a byproduct of experience. Mm-hmm. I think that's something I've thought about a lot. Is like, and this comes with like the sense of being calm when you're after meditating. Um, I think that's something that I have been okay with not having. Is like I'm not necessarily calm. I'm a little more mindful. A little more. A little more understanding of the situation which then that byproduct creates a sense of calmness and accepting this that i may not have had if i didn't meditate if i didn't if i didn't have a moment of mindfulness um and this is not necessarily me but in general i think being able to um to uh, yeah i guess it's it's no acknowledge that your control over um your experience is not there but it's it's how you how you how you perceive it, and acknowledging that a byproduct is is that that's your control, and it's um, yeah. I mean, I'm not saying that I'm the perfect guy. I'm not saying I'm the meditating king, but I I will say that I've seen the changes that it has on on me and on other people I know. Um, as you say, I mean, even even at the lowest level, you're still the greatest thing is is that you're not going to have the same meditating experience every time. Like yesterday, I spent 20 minutes, I, I try to meditate 20 minutes a day now, and it's very difficult, but I spent 20 minutes yesterday focusing on my posture the whole time. I couldn't even think of anything else. It was the weirdest thing. Just my lower back, my hips, my upper back, my shoulders, and, and then understanding the positioning of my legs. And that's all I could think about. I couldn't, I couldn't get myself out of this loop. But the fact that I was able to acknowledge that and the fact that I'm accepting that, that happens to people. That happens where you get stuck sometimes. Um, but knowing that I can't do, mu- once I've established my posture, my comfortable position, it's not much I can do after that. It's just there. I'm comfortable and I'm going to leave it there. Be okay with that. Be here now. Mm-hmm. So in the moment, there's going to be difficulties. Um, I've I experienced them all the time. I, <clears throat> I'll have these where I, I'll, like Sam Harris will present a concept I'll think about it and then I'll totally forget about it or I'll, I'll even be thinking about something and he'll have said something and I forgot it. So I'll, I'll actually, I'll want to have gone back, but, um, but obviously I'm not going to do that in the middle of meditating. I think it throws me out of a loop, mm-hmm. but that will happen where I'll, I get in this wheel and then I fall off of it and I want to get back on it. But rather than that, I can just accept that I'm off the wheel and now I'm where I want to be, which is in this open space of existence. And I think, I think that that plays into a lot of, of these like byproducts of emotion. Um, you're not given, you're, you're given a sense of, of like a, a keyboard of, of emotion rather than, than, a, than a remote um, mm-hmm. or even a, a little Roku remote, you know? Yeah. You know, that, you know that feeling like maybe you're driving somewhere and you are driving along and whatever and then you just kind of arrive and you're like, wait, like, I don't really remember any of that yes. drive. Like, how did I get here? How did I not crash? Like, I don't even remember driving. Like, that feeling of, of being on autopilot is is common in people. Mm-hmm. And it, an interesting psychological study that I learned in one was that people actually, even when they're doing a task that they don't necessarily enjoy or even actually dislike, mm-hmm. they actually are more... They actually enjoy the activity more when they're focused on it, like when they're intentionally doing it, mm. than when they're like passively doing it. 
kind of on this autopilot. Yeah. And so there's there's this value to kind of turning off that autopilot. And, yeah. And and I think when you do that, you you kind of instigate the the be here now, which yeah. is like you're you're here now. So I'm I'm curious to think what you what you or curious to hear what you think of the, the Ram Das book. A little bit of it is kind of out there. Like, I don't necessarily believe in the asceticism stuff and, like, yeah. all that. I, I think that his, his belief system is kind of, is, is very much tied to, like, Hindu scripture. Yeah. And, like, that personally just doesn't really resonate with me. Um, but there's so much of, of, of what's in there that's just so applicable. And a lot of these Eastern cultures just have really interesting things to say on, uh-huh. on mindfulness and just just the way the way to act and the way to think yeah i've, I've heard some of them what ramdas has to say and he's he's more of like you know metta is a type of meditating practice and it's it's, it's loving kindness and there's a lot more of like a, I guess it's that is loving and kindness mm-hmm. viewpoint that seems to be what ramdas is um I, obviously i haven't read the book but i'm definitely going to and because it'll be interesting to see how much his his words resonate with me and how much doesn't um it happens with people i mean i don't entirely agree with everything that sam harris has to say on the app i don't entirely agree with everything that um anyone really has to say i mean i'm I'm allowed to disagree that's Mm -hmm. the beauty of individuality um but it's it's interesting to see where the line is where there's almost there's some small, let's say the book in, let's say 25% of the book is ring resonates with me and 75% is just nonsense to me. There's, there's some times where you value, well, not you, but the general you will value the 75% and make that encompass the hundred percent rather than saying, well, there is this 25% and I might very much still agree with this 25%, but I'm willing to acknowledge that 75% of what he said, I did not agree with. Mm-hmm. And so, it's um, it's something that I have tried to do with um, in 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 anything really. I mean, I listen to people talk. I listen. I have conversations with people, and there's something that I hear that I want. I'll be like, yes, that sticks with me. But then, I, but the rest of it, I didn't agree with. But I still remember. And it's like taking away the emotion. It's like I remember what you said, and I agree with that, and I want to touch on that. But I also want to continue to argue the point of whatever it may be, um, and it's. Is weird with um with a mindfulness thing because, or yeah, in the sense of mindfulness because it kind of it comes from a humanistic and holistic viewpoint that is we want you to have the best experience you can have, we want you to be the best person you can be, and this is how we think you should do it, mm-hmm. and the the difficulty is there's going to be misinterpretations or not even misinterpretations but just differentiation of di- interpretations, um, that spark discussion they spark discourse which is beautiful i love discourse that's what the podcast is for (laughs) but it's also um it also can create a loss an imbalance in belief that is well he said this so everything else he says i don't agree with anymore because of that one thing he said right Um, right but well, it's been a good podcast, man. This it's has been, been a, a top-tier yeah. podcast. Yeah, this is two hours and 25 minutes <laughs> Really? Now. Yeah, man. Oh, my goodness. Yeah, I, know. I know. It's <laughs> Flew by. Yeah. No, that's, this, is a, this is the great thing. That's what right? happens when I start talking. That's what happens when we all start talking. Yeah, it's a good time, man. So, uh, that was great. Yeah, thanks, thanks for, for having me, Yeah. All right.